Hello and welcome to episode 289 of the Crate and Crowbar. It is the 17th of July, 2019, can you imagine? My name is Chris Thurston and tonight I'm joined by Tom Francis. Hello. And Alex Wiltshire. Hiya. Hello. It's games time again. Time for games opinions. <laughs> the best time. Yeah, just dispense of them. It's so weird on Video Games Hot Dog where they're not allowed to talk about games for like the first half of the podcast. And if the conversation naturally leads towards games, they have to like back away. <laughs> no, the games chat is too hot. <laughs> <laughs> so how do they, how do they initiate the, 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 the full on tumble into games? Uh, or is it like I think when they of... run out of things to say about life. <laughs> yeah, we're guilty when, of a lot of different kinds. There's nothing more to say about life. We must move on to games. <laughs> we're guilty of a lot of different kinds of tangent, but we've never been that kind of podcast, I don't think. Yeah. Despite having almost no discernible structure. <laughs> yeah, we're meandering within the topic of games, but don't go far off it. Yeah, until... We bathe in our shame. <laughs> yeah, right. I think, yeah, we can be credited for at least staying sort of on topic for an extremely long period of time. Far more than we probably needed to. Ah, uh, like, uh, shameful strays into non uh relevant chat is when we talk about console games for a while <laughs> yeah, or tabletop games. games or foxes <laughs> yeah. oh yeah fox chat mm. well um we're talking about this now to get uh, to, in order to fill the amount of time that would normally be i think that's decent news <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we feel so guilty about not having much news to talk about or not wanting to talk about much news that uh, we decided to talk about nothing <laughs> instead for let's say a good minute Forty five yeah. seconds. I oh. think I think that every listener will be pleased with the decency with which I think we've... there's nothing there's nothing short of a really good ad break that makes me happy to be listening to a podcast <laughs> than slightly meta podcast format talk. <laughs> which I apparently now can't escape from. Help. I find that like the news that catches my eye in a given month, uh a week, I guess. How often do we do this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> um is ninety percent of it's just, oh, this game finally came out, but I haven't played it yet or this game now has a release date, or it's coming soon, or it's only access, so I'm not going to play it yet. And so, like, we could go for all that, but there's not much value in it, really. It's just like, yeah. game exists. Indeed. And we've now located the sort of topic of conversation that maybe even perhaps is less value than that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to jump in. I'm okay. going to say, Chris, tell me about the game. Oh, thanks for throwing to me first. <laughs> I was actually going to ask if you could throw to me first, because I'm legitimately concerned that... Little, little, oh, little. God, it's happening already. <laughs> You've dropped the ball. I was going to say... You asked for the ball. I was going to say, I'd quite like to try and unpack some feelings about a game I've been playing recently at the top of the podcast before I get too drunk. <laughs> so, um, I've obviously already screwed that up. Um, thanks, Sailor Jerry. Um, <laughs> and the one sip Single I've sip. had. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> um... But yeah, so I've played some different things in the last week and a bit, um, thanks to the Steam sale. And just sort of late Steam sale, deciding to pick up a couple of things for a tenor that I'd sort of been thinking about playing for a long time. And the first of those games that I wanted to talk about is a game that I don't think we've talked about on the pod, um, and I think requires some contextualizing, which is uh, Kingdom Come Deliverance. Oh, uh-huh. um, So I finally got around to playing it, and because it's a... And so there's a bunch of, I don't know how to approach it. This is one of the reasons I wanted to kind of, uh, <laughs> Talk about try <laughs> while I was relatively clear minded. So Kingdom of Deliverance is a, uh, like a medieval role playing game structurally in the, uh, Bethesda sort of mold. Open world first person feels very old school Elder Scrollsy, um, which has a lot of appeal to me. Uh, I tend to love those kinds of games and I also love low, Either low fantasy settings or sort of, you know, um, uh, down to earth historical settings. Actually, to be honest, I don't think I've ever really encountered this in a historical setting before, but certainly, you know, how I feel about sword fighting systems and sort of, um, uh, immersion and, and sort of believability in big landscapes and things like that. 
And it's a game very much about all of those things. The thing that complicates it is, I think maybe some of this baggage has, um, it was certainly, it certainly carried a lot of baggage throughout its development because of the outspoken views of its, uh, developers in some regards, particularly, uh, during the height of the Gamergate movement. And because of, um, because, and, and the specifically surrounded a kind of its, its version of what historical means. And, and really what historical means, the game is set in, uh, in Bohemia and the Holy Roman Empire. And, um, really what, um, its version of historical means is an extremely, uh, white take on medieval Europe. And that is an issue for, for a bunch of reasons. I think particularly in the light of some of the things that were said about the game, uh, by its own developers. However, one thing that's been interesting playing it is that that is actually not that different to most fantasy games. Yeah. Right? <clears throat> like, it is about as, um, maybe critical of its presentation of <clears throat> that sort of kind of life as something like Skyrim is, to be honest. And that doesn't necessarily excuse it. And I, I sort of wanted to bring that up up front so that when I talk about it, I can kind of try and shape how that sort of worked for me and not, and, and, and how it, sorry, the game has worked for me and not, and how its other issues have kind of orbited that experience. Cause it's kind of been a strange one to dig into because, um, at the top level, there's something quite, um, compelling about its sort of fantasy free approach to role playing that it is a game where, you know, it really wants to kind of bury you in the nitty gritty of living life in, in that sort of environment. You get dirty and if you get dirty and you don't bathe and bathing is expensive or you need to find a trough, then people <laughs> think less of you when they speak to you. Um, your sword gets bloody, your armor gets tattered. Everything is sort of simulated to a kind of fine degree and it all links into systems like conversation and so on, which are all reasonably robust. And it's very, uh, granular as a role playing game. And it is achingly slow. Like everything takes forever. You, you are not going to, you know, fighting people, trying to kill someone is an ordeal. Like, <laughs> you know, fighting takes ages. The sword fighting system is very, very granular and, um, deep and, and actually, uh, really well animated in a first person way. Like the presentation's actually pretty good. I think now that it's been out a while, particularly, and a lot of the bugs have been ironed out, although it is still quite buggy. And so it has this sort of extremely, um, I think for me, um, uh, compelling sense of place. And I think when you're assessing that, you also need to be critical of some of the assumptions that are being made in the construction of that place. However, um, I found it like genuinely, um, particularly now that I'm a couple of, like a dozen hours into the game and it is sort of letting me do my own thing a little bit. It's a nice, it's a, it's a, for the first time in a while, a game that has really kind of let me sort of sink into a particular place. And so to the good, I would say that like it's countryside is phenomenal. It's some of the best just, you know, rolling hills that I've seen in the game for a really long time. It's really evocative. The lighting's great. The time of day stuff is really good. And it really successfully makes you feel like you're walking over a, a hill in, you know, European countryside. It's forests really feel like forests in a way that most games don't struggle to achieve, like the way that you can get lost really easily. Um, you know, that it feels, it doesn't feel like a kind of speed tree fest so much as like a really big kind of handcrafted landscape. And I know that a lot of historical reference was used to the construction of like little towns and villages and that you genuinely get a little like flush of it feeling like a real place. And then a, a guard will spawn standing on top of his horse in a T-post. But you know, there's like a, there's a certain, there's jank there, but there's a certain amount of like, ooh, this sort of 
has a feel for it that I haven't gotten from a game for a little while. A little bit mm-hmm. like that sort of first explorations in Skyrim where, where you sort of forget what it is that you're doing and, and crucially maybe forget the context. Um, and also like, actually personally it's slowness and the, it's you know it doesn't it has the sort of old school elder scrolls leveling system so you level up by doing something and you start the game shit at everything like you try and draw an arrow and a bow you wave it around basically you can't aim steady there's no reticle or anything like that so you have to learn how to draw a bead from basically where on the back of your hand the center of the screen is like it really does try to force you into all these granular details but i find something quite gratifying about that and i think as my professional life has been recently with a lot of really big deadlines the fact that it's tremendously boring <laughs> has felt like a kind of real luxury. Like I haven't had time to be bored with the game for a really long time. I'm not bored in the kind of like, um, I'm not, I don't know, maybe I'm not being, you know, stimulated necessarily, but like a kind of the, the luxury of being able to just walk through some woods and hunt a rabbit and it be quite slow and, and the, the, the act of knocking a bow and drawing it being laborious and everything being kind of very simulated and granular and slow. It's actually, really appealing and then like the bad kind of boredom is where you feel like you're not gonna get anything out of it like yeah. oh yeah. I'm, I'm bored of this because it holds nothing more for me there's nothing more here to get even if yeah. i do spend a bunch of time on it and then i guess the good kind of boredom is i'm getting something from this slowly yeah, yeah i'm just sort of in this place and it is slow and boring but okay yeah, i might hit the rabbit yeah i might hit the I rabbit probably won't. Yeah. um and then it does you know it, it is there's there's so much i could say about its design that is weird like it obviously it wants to hold your feet to the fire when it comes to not saves, saves coming. Hmm. Um, so uh, it allows you to save and quit. Then you can save and quit anywhere. And I feel like that might have been a concession in a patch. <laughs> like you can save and quit, but you're, you have a death save that is, which sorry, a quit save, which is then replaced the next time you save and quit. Yeah. So the only way to really, um, to manipulate that is to, um, quit the game before something tough happens and then, uh, then reload the game and continue. Okay, so if you die, you can load that that last quit save. You can, yeah. If it's it still has your most recent save, so it's just adding an extra step to a quick right. save, right? Like we can. You just in. have to wait for the whole world to load. Yeah, out. again, yeah. So it's just punishing you for no reason. Otherwise, you only save when you sleep in a bed, like a proper bed, and, and the game's quite judgmental about what counts. <laughs> so, um, so it kind of it feels like sometimes it wants you to replay whole days, like slow days you know, if you fail at some point or something goes wrong and it doesn't quite work. Cause like, you know, but in, in some ways it feel quite weirdly appropriate. Like I, I got up really early in the morning. So I had to find some birds for the local hunter and I walked for miles to get to this forest. And then I, I got, I couldn't find them cause I couldn't get across the river cause the river was too deep. So I couldn't just swim it. Cause it's not a video game in that sense. The, your character actually says that's too deep. And then he turned back. And then while trying to take a shortcut back to town, I fell down a hill that was slightly too steep, <laughs> broke both my legs and died. <laughs> and it's like, that's medieval life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like that's, you know, and it's almost like, yeah, well that is what I signed up for. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. That is an adventure. Like, I tried to use the, my bandages on my broken legs and it was like, that's not going to work, you idiot. You're not bleeding. And I was like, oh shit, you're right, game. And then I just died. <laughs> so <laughs> like, what did you die of? I just, just, uh, if, like, broken on, like, ennui. Like, <laughs> <laughs> lack of productivity. Like, <laughs> um, I, I was put down by a passing wayfarer like a horse. Like, the, you know, there's, there's those moments like that. And then that when that happens and you go back to the start of the day, it sucks. But there is another way to save, which is a limited resource you can only buy from, uh, taverns called oh, yeah. Savior Snaps. Snaps. 
So if you drink a bottle of schnapps, you save. Um, so it turns out we've been saving our game once a week on this podcast. Um, but yeah, so you have a, and I don't know why this is, it's a, it is a bizarre mechanic because it is a functionally a quick save, but it's one that you have to go purchase in advance and it makes you slightly drunk. Like in oh, the so game. there is actually a drunkenness aspect <laughs> yeah. to it as well. It makes you slightly drunk. It does make you drunk enough by itself to do anything. But if you were already, uh, if you were already drinking in the game and then you chose to quick save, you might, you tip over into pissed. Like there's, um, it's a, a, a really strange, um, decision, but there's this atmosphere of, um, well, I'll tell you what it is. What it is, is the game has been constructed with a very particular, and I think, there's a word for it. It's very conservative view. And you see it a bunch in, in, it has a lot of the old school role playing kind of, um, grit that people had been complaining was fading from the yeah. industry since Fallout 3, which was at this, is at this point 10, more than 10 years ago. You know, it's, it's got that kind of RPG forum kind of, um, like, um, hardcore thing. And it's explicitly, I think, positioning itself at those, at those kinds of fans. Similarly, it's, it's worldview is tremendously, um, conservative as well. So, and then it has this sort of punitive idea that like real players won't want to, won't quick, or can't, you know, won't quick save. And not only that, they want to be forced not to by a mechanic rather than being trusted not to save scum, which I think is what would be a more intelligent design for the game, which is revealed whenever a concession like the quit and save mechanic mm. is there because that is there to acknowledge the fact that some people got a quick game, sometimes house on fire. You know what I mean? Sometimes dog emergency, lots of reasons why you might want to quit the game. Um, and, um, and yeah, so, but for, yeah, so, so it's a bit of a, a weird one in that regard. And also I, I should say as well, like, um, uh, a strange, it's a, it's, I'm still, I've read some things about it in the interim between recording the podcast because I genuinely still sort of wrestling with whether it, whether I feel compelled to point out it's what I feel like are it's kind of tonal and thematic, um, blind spots and weaknesses because of the the way those comments sort of shaped it prior to its release or whether I would say this about any other game, but um, it is, it is set in a world where men tend to be sort of um, gruff and hyper capable and women tend to be supportive and uh, you know, good in a, in a, in explicitly in this game, a Christian sense. It's, it's unusual in some ways in games because most of its characters are explicitly Christian and that you don't necessarily hit that hmm. all the time. Similarly, um, in the beginning of the game, you know, you encounter an enemy army that has a big mercenary component and, uh, there's lots of, um, you know, um, they're, they're all, you know, from different countries. So there's mercenary groups from, uh, from Hungary and, uh, uh, humans and I think Tartars and there's a few others. And a lot of people in the game are explicitly racist. Um, they don't like these people that have come over here and, you know, they express a lot of views that are, that are racist, right? Um, in some senses, it's believable that a medieval peasant would see a foreign army and be racist about it um, because people are racist now, right? Like that is not surprising at the same time. It is, it is surprising to hear in a game um, sort of um, because people, this, this sort of trope comes up all of the time in fantasy games, right? The kind of the, the, the barbarian horde or whatever that people are frightened of. It's just that in the mass majority of fantasy games, it's sort of tucked away behind a slightly racist bit of Lord of the Rings that has fallen, or an explicitly racist bit of Lord of the Rings that has kind of been folded through multiple Mm. generations of photocopiers and have come out as orcs. Like that's, you know, it's, it's a fascinating problem in a way, because in some ways it's very similitude and it's desire to 
to put its lens on real history almost is one of the only ways of being in some cases is at least intellectually honest about the genesis of a lot of those tropes in fantasy fiction at the same time its basis in history is obviously its scholarship is obviously shaky and one of the reasons that it's shaky is because it itself is very much a fantasy game you play as the blacksmith's son henry who is initially like he has some charms it's a voiced protagonist who has very specific attitudes which is a weird choice i think for game isn't, like he, isn't he voiced by kind of a sort of isn't he got a kind of like a midland midlands voice no he's, he sounds like he's from around here is he? he's got a slightly west country accent which is kind of again unusual you don't hear accents like that necessarily i'm playing witcher 3 at the moment i'm hearing a lot of those accents right <laughs> right um also the accent game is all over the place some people are american some people are uh some people are british some people are you know from uh, it's, it's completely all over the place but um he's the blacksmith's son it's really heavily implied early that he may also be like the bastard son of a noble maybe you know he's sort of an every every man peasant which is not a thing um you he know, sounds like he's ripe for a hero's journey course. right <laughs> village done burned down bad man in black armor all in black armor steel father's sword gotta get it back but who are you really on the backdrop of war and 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 you know whatever you do as long as you're capable and you're constantly impressing um men what are like certain game of thrones characters and i don't like so you've got you've got a kind of like trustworthy but ultimately slightly wily lord can you trust him is he your dad lots of different questions there he brings you into his service because you're just so kind of good at stuff i guess and brave and worthy and then he's friends with basically robert baratheon who's like uh, trying to deal with his shit of a son he's parring with the son but his son kind of means well he's just a bit of a shit you know what i mean there's all this sort of like really well-trodden fantasy trope stuff and you kind of walk through it because as long as you keep doing what you're told and being capable the road ahead of you just leads up until presumably you find out that you're actually minor nobility and you get uh, a big horse in a house or something to unlock the house. I don't know if that's coming, but it feels like it is. And, you know, you, you even get a choice of perk early on. When you level up speech, you can choose. There's two exclusive perks. You have to pick one of them. You can either pick lowborn or highborn, and it improves your speech skill when speaking to either peasants or nobility. And it's that weird thing, like, why do I get, why do I get to choose? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> like. This is the one thing you yeah, exactly. Because you're definitely like a low, like a, you know, a peasant at the start. Yeah, they yeah. refer to you as it, but you still get to kind of choose. Actually, nah, guess what? Like, <laughs> oh, oh, strike a light, governor. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, they're just a social climber, I guess. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, I just, it's, it's a weird. So this is the, that's thing. the like, so I keep thinking about The Witcher 3, uh, in all of this because, the Witcher 3 has kind of overt racism in it as well. You know, you have people saying racist things about other groups of people in the game. Um, but it's told, you see it all through Geralt's eyes and Geralt is a man of the road. Like he's, he sides with nobody. Um, but he, he kind of treads a somewhat noble kind of path through a load of people who are assholes, you know, and it means yeah. that they, it can set up a racist group, you know, a group being racist about another because it will show you both sides. And so you can understand the racism, you know, from within, you can understand why they're saying racist things and you can see why the people who have been, who have had and committed against them sort of how they feel about it. And yeah, and like, and I can imagine you don't get that this kind of viewpoint. This is the thing. It's like, you don't talk because at the beginning of the game, that big, I mean, minor spoilers for the beginning of Kingdom Come, but it's important because well, it's also- a bit where you smear the shit on the house. The, you can throw some shit at a house um, straight away. Um, it's uh, because that's the yeah. only bit I remember. When uh, I was beaten up by a soldier, and I never went back. Yeah, right. 
Um, you can do that. basically so you know this this foreign army attacks and burns down your village. Blah blah blah. Cutscene, 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 and then while you're running away, uh, you have the option to try and like. Well, it's another design thing. You can try and help. That's the bit I'm stopped at. Yeah, because um, basically the 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 female lead, who's essentially love interest for the rest of the game, is the um, the the Miller's daughter, and she's referred to exclusively by your character as the Miller's wench in conversation for like the first like I don't know whether it's the translation thing, whatever. But she is being. But it's very tropey. Yeah, she's being explicitly. She's, she, well, she's explicit, when you come across her, she's explicitly about to be sexually assaulted by these, this foreign army, yeah. or soldiers from this foreign army. And you can either do nothing or you, and let her be the distraction while you sneak past, or you can whistle and it te- it's how it teaches you to whistle for your horse. This is the horse whistling tutorial. And if you press X, you whistle and then they turn around, chase you, and then you get this kind of like, you saved her kind of thing. Oh my God. I was trying to, I was trying to fight them for ages. Right. Well, so yeah, that's a whole other thing. But that, you know, that is its, and, but I want to return to that, but via this thing, which is that is its introduction of this thing. So when you next, you can then ask people in the next town, like, who were those people? And you get a response like, oh, they're all bastards, aren't they? And, but your character kind of thinks that as well, because. But that, I mean, I think that's okay. You know, it, it kind of. Yeah, it kind of is. Because you're just, role-playing. But as long as the arc kind of lets you see other sides. It's just that it's so, so tropey. Mm. Like, it is, mm. you know, it is it is thick with the setups of revenge stories early on. And, and some of that is on this, you know, other faction. Some of it isn't. But it's like, here's, oh, parents, oh, dear. Village, oh, dear. And then we're even going to throw in this character that we're then going to try and build a relationship with. And it's going to be built around this, like, explicitly sexual threat early on, which is just... It's it's sort of hard going, I think, particularly if you were waiting for it to do something a bit different, because one of its great strengths is that it's based in a period of real history and actually uses that backdrop to reasonably interesting effect. Because I don't know huge amounts about the internal politics of the Holy Roman Empire and the political backdrop for the game is, I think, based on, you know, real periods in history. And it's kind of interesting, but it's what they've spun it out into is prob- is is almost entirely rote, which is what is such a shame about it yeah so what are the race what is the race that you're being racist uh, so i had to look it up it's they're they're referred to as cumans and i believe they they were kind of like originally from turkey but it's like a you know like a i, I don't know enough about real history do they sort of look visibly they look, different they look your... visibly yeah they do look visibly different like right. i think sometimes in the game people seem to mistake them for tartars and then this is your people no Sorry. no oh, this right, is the, the nasty yeah, invaders yeah. that you blah, hate them right, right? right. like hmm. it's you know it, it, they are you know they're explicitly exoticized when you refer to them they, they they speak in a language you don't understand everyone else speaks english which is czech in this um you know it's it really is you know it's xenophobic in its presentation of outsiders coming in yeah it's funny it's funny how different how that kind of those kind of prejudices have a very different feel to them when it's someone who looks different to you than when it's you know English people and French people <laughs> who yep. have all kinds of sort of uh, you know jokes at both those nations' expense are popular in each nation and it just it isn't good and uh, it is xenophobic. But it's so far from like black versus white racism. I think it's. I mean, I, oh, I sorry, white versus black. Well, the, the the it's profoundly about the power dynamic, mm. right? You know, this is this is a and this is evocative of. I mean, obviously in this case, this is evocative of paranoid fears about the other, basically, right? Like it is, you know, it is all of those tropes of they're going to come over here and X and Y, 
right? And so the fact that Which, it I mean, it's all very. I mean, the, the one of the things about it is that it's entirely plausible. Like you know, clearly this stuff happened throughout history. You know, as you said earlier. But the point, the I think the thing that's being missed out is that you're making a choice about that story, and you're you could very well tell the story from the other side where your people are taking another group of people yeah. you know why why not do that one you know it'd be a bit braver right. yeah more like, interesting it's one of the reasons that i've so yeah and it's interesting kind of in the light of all that why i've sort of persevered with it and one of the reasons is so the i believe the dlcs or at least one of the most recent ones do jump you into different perspectives and one of them is a prequel where you play as one of the women in the village and I'm really interested to see what that's like, but I feel like I should play the main game first. Maybe I could try jumping into that. It's called A Woman's Lot, which is immediately a sort of, you know, you kind of want to see where they're going with that. But yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one. And I think the other thing is that those moments early on particularly are both eyebrow raises in terms of the content and the presentation of them. Because if you were going to tell, this is the thing, it is one thing to have a world where people were you know, you know, xenophobic because the world is still works that way. And it's, there's almost having people to hold those prejudices and voice them in a game can be critical. And it would be, be it would be frankly strange if there was sort of saying, Oh, then they're, they're, they're lovely people. Right. If they held, they're attacking us. If they held modern views, that yeah. would be strange. However, it's the fact that the game enacts yeah. the trope really explicitly is the issue. But the other thing is also it's caged in a really sort of, um, there are several forced fails in a row early in the game. And that's the other thing I was going to say is if that content doesn't put you off, I mean, and I think, because I think there's a, there's a really interesting immersive RPG there of a kind that hasn't existed for a while. And when it lets you off the hook, as long as you can kind of forgive the, the, uh, yeah, the, the sort of whitewashed fantasiness of it all, which you have to do as well, unfortunately, with so many games like this, you can actually there is a something enjoyable there. There is something about coming across bandits in the woods and getting a sword fight with them that is thrilling. Um, but early on, it also gets bogged down quite heavily in, in initially this forced fail sequence where you've got to flee. And then as you're fleeing again, you see your, your friend being assaulted. And what it tells you is that you just need to make a distraction. You can run up to them and try and hit them and then run away. You have lots of freedom, like systemic freedom, but obviously as a player, your instinct is I want to fight and you can't, fight you really can't win in that fight you'll die and the only way you learn this is when you get kicked back to one of those checkpoints and forced to do it again until you last time you drank schnapps yeah the last time you it's quite get, a memory it was quite long um like it was a, it they was may have fixed that because it's not it's like the top of the hill you just run right, back down again okay. um and then there's a chase sequence there's more of the game it kind of plods on and then um it all kind of the the, the prologue which is maybe like four hours of play before the credits roll basically the opening credits roll kind of ends again with a fight that you are intended to lose. And those feel like kind of um, wonky mechanical decisions on top of quite a weak and tropey opening, mm. which is, yeah, which is also compounded by the fact that in other contexts, despite the tropiness of it, the cutscenes are actually kind of meticulously mo-capped and quite like well presented photographed yeah well photographed and again the game looks great so it's got this sort of sense of yeah so it's a it's an interesting one i appreciate that i've been wanging on for about it for a fair time now but like i find it uh kind of fascinating as an artifact both of a very particular 
which I think is probably the more important thing, of a very particular attitude towards games and PC games in general that was sort of bubbling away for a long time. Like, it sold extremely well, and I think one of the reasons for that is it was, you know, I think one of the reasons for that is people are, are attracted to games like this. It has the Skyrim missionness, it has... Well, they want they want the, the live sim game. Live sim, survival games, fantasy games. It has a lot of that. An air of history about it. But it also has a very particular um sort of like a very particular credibility that has is maybe you know maybe has some merit in the sense of people wanting more granular rpgs and and that kind of thing but that is so political because it is so linked to um you know because it is so linked to uh a rejection of other modern trends in games like inclusion diversity and intelligent script writing so it's like you know it was it was basically you know because it was it was adamantly praised by people who saw the game itself as a kind of anti-sjw statement piece and i don't necessarily think that needs to stain the work of every developer who worked on it because someone clearly knew of shitload about trees (laughs) when they made this game and that person's work i doesn't i don't think deserves to be um, rendered ugly by the praise it received from certain quarters, but nonetheless, it's a it's a it's a it's a weird thing to experience. Like I don't know if I'll if I'll finish it. It seems to have slotted into a particular period of my life where I want to be bored in a field desperately <laughs> and then murdered with a sword, and it has allowed that to happen several times. Um, but yeah. Really interesting, really interesting. It made me, or more than anything else, kind of wish for more games like in that genre, in that for more people to take on that kind of space as well. Like, where are, where is Todd Howard now? What is he doing? What <laughs> mountain has he climbed? When will we find out what that is? Yeah, that's Jones in for not for not for that exactly, but for the next Elder Scrolls specifically. Recently, I think I was just looking at like a, a big old boat in a fantasy game. Like, shit. Big old boats, they're cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's giving uh, me that, f- yeah. Actually, I think it's because I was playing The Witcher 3 and, and playing it from third person and it looks great, but there's something different about being, about a first person fantasy game where you just, yeah. big things look fucking big and you really feel that sense of awe and that sense of like, you know, you feel small compared to the world, which I never get from an over the shoulder. No, there's something about like, you know, clip clopping your horse up to the gate of a big castle and wondering what's in there. And the answer is what's in there is probably like a blacksmith, several quest givers. <laughs> And, uh, and that's something you can nick. But, like, there is still something about it that's sort of like, oh, I missed this. This very specific part of me that used to... Uh, the magic. Ooh. Go home on weekends and just play Skyrim for 48 hours because it's all I wanted to yeah. do was live there. Like, I haven't been in that place for the game for a while, and this has gotten to there after a, a, a start that was rocky for different reasons. Really, Redemption hasn't... Redemption 2 <laughs> hasn't managed to... Uh, truly yeah yeah (laughs) truly capture that in me like i i definitely liked going for walks in the woods but i i've only been able to play it for an hour hour and a half at a time before Mm. i kind of enough enough that was and that had a first person mode and it It was it did it that stressed that difference it was like whoa holy shit (laughs) i was just like when i discovered that i was just just went for a walk for like 15 minutes straight just (laughs) not doing anything not interacting with anything just walking across the scenery and just loving it uh, but you can't really play the game like that. No. It's pretty awkward to actually yeah. get things done. Yeah, yeah. And actually, for all that I've said about it, I think, to my discredit, I reckon if this game had been set in a kind of loosely fictionalized fantasy kingdom called, like, Azerothadil or something, <laughs> I 
probably wouldn't have said half the things I've said because <laughs> it's so easy to ignore these issues when they're not yeah. Yeah, literally yeah. thrown in your face by the fact that the developers I mean, are. It, and it could be like if you, if you kind of remove the game from that context, you'd actually find a lot of stuff which actually is quite critical about the things that it raises you know i don't i don't think it's critical like i i, I think it well, is, i mean whether it, intention aside mm-hmm. you know well but i guess what i would say is it feels like because it, because i remember from when i played it the 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 racism that i remember from the start like it they, they aren't nice people who are racist like they aren't presented as being nice guys no that's true there's and like you, you, there, it does and attempt- actually there's isn't there a guy that is of, of that of the, this foreign nation no in living in the village no he's gets, german he's german yeah that's right and he gets he gets shit thrown at him because he's german no he gets shit thrown at him because he's um he's critical of the king because they're all citizens of the holy Roman empire so mm. it, it is different it, it really does reserve its nastiest thing for people who aren't citizens which right. is another trope right? right like um i know the sequence you mean but it, it's not quite yeah. that like okay. it, it's it's there's there is maybe some extent where it says like people at the you know, the lower end of society have these kind of prejudices and things, and at their upper end, it's just politics, which is something. But again, the other side of it is, I would describe it as like a very romantic game. Not, and you yeah, can, you, yeah, there's yeah. lots of, there's lots of shagging in it, and you can get a cool buff for being a big shagger. Oh, um, yeah. Because of course you fucking can. But it's also like, it is, it's got that kind of, it's, it's kind of, it's countryside is gorgeous and it's countryside is also gorgeous for a reason, which is it's sort of like a love letter to this landscape and to this sort of place. And that again, is you know nationalistic it's nation- it, 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 that is the thing right like what we would accept as just a fantasy landscape that is pretty because fantasy landscapes are pretty and they have big mountains in them sort of vibrates on the knife edge of nationalism when it's put in this context the, the countryside it reminds me of the most is everyone's gone to the rapture which is a gorgeous mm. game and it's impressive that this manages the same effect in a truly open world rather than a relatively linear kind of countryside kind of corridor um and you wouldn't necessarily that necessarily say that everyone everyone's gone to the rapture was like a jingoistic game, but it is certainly an uh, you know it's an evocative it's an evocation of a very particular place in time. Radio Four. It's of Radio Four <laughs> that is only not, um, I guess, outwardly nationalistic because its themes are so different to that. It is like oh do, oh dear, we've all been. Well, to the rapture. We've all gone to the rapture. <laughs> spoilers. Yeah, spoilers. That was the first title. Oh dear, we've all gone to the rapture. Um, yeah, which means that it's sort of Little England thinks it's slightly to the side of that, or, you know, has some different relationship with it. Whereas this is very much like, you know, this part of the world is gorgeous and this place in time was very specific. And, you know, it has, it's almost, it's, it feels Romantic idealized. It's, yeah. it's, it's idealized. It's, yeah. it's, you know, this was a time when, Everyone was, you know, mans were mans, and mans were mans, and wenches were wenches, wenches were wenches, and priests were fat. But ultimately, everyone was devout. Like, you know what I mean? It's got that sort of, um, yeah. It's interesting. It's, it's fascinating in a way to compare it to Assassin's Creed series, like you know, which is in its, which is so much more cosmopolitan in its presentation of history mm. because it's also so much larger than life and cartoonish. This feels more like opening a Victorian history book about a particular place, mm. where with all of those, with all of the 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 beliefs and desires of the the writer right, laid yeah, on top of the history yeah. and and there is still something sort of powerful about experiencing that even if you wouldn't necessarily say it was good history you know or good storytelling or original you know what i mean it's uh, yeah it's really it really is it's made me think a lot as i've been again plopping about on a horse like farting and eating carrots and and in the game um yeah you mentioned uh Assassin's Creed. I wanted to say something about yeah. Assassin's Creed because I've um, 
I dipped back into Odyssey over the last few days. Oh, yeah. And um, I do, I've been doing this. How long has it been out for? Six months? More, longer? hundred years. <laughs> no, <laughs> Ten months. Yeah, a long time. And um, I am level 15 now. So 15? I don't think that's very what? far, is it? No. no. <laughs> we're all like what the fuck get out of here <laughs> look we'll talk about Assassin's Creed the adults <laughs> <laughs> and I, yeah and I, I'm really aware that like it, the world like is constantly showing me just how little I've played of it and and then meanwhile like I'd look on you know on the web and learn that the final part of its DLC is out and it's, it's in Atlantis. Like, yeah. what the fuck? <laughs> what what, what oh, journey man. do I have to go You've on? You've got yeah. some journeys to go on. <laughs> I want everyone. It's like it's a really long journey sort of story-ish thing. I don't know what the word yeah. for that is. It's like you go from place to place over the course of uh, just a, a saga. It's a saga. <laughs> saga. <laughs> I am, um, I find, I, I, I enjoy it. Uh, I enjoy it. Um, it feels good, like it's pretty, be- pretty world, and <laughs> really pretty world. And, Feel good, pretty world. <laughs> and like, I, it just feels like I don't know whether it's an accident of my current situation because I'm in the right place at the right time, or whether it is genuinely incredibly well balanced. But I seem to be going to the places where I'm exactly the right level <laughs> for it, and I'm having fights which have a nice balance of challenge. Mm. And there are just of, a lot of know, places. I think there's just yeah. a lot of places. <laughs> But, um, and I sort of, but, but at no point have I, you know, it's got good voice acting and blah, blah, blah. At no point have I actually felt like I'm experiencing anything of substance at all. Have you and gotten to the opening credits yet? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Okay. No, I mean, that sorry, maybe I don't mean ago. that. There's a bit where it really starts and it might be 400 years into the game. <laughs> so I, I've, I've discovered, I've discovered something that i've forgotten I, I discovered something significant and i can't remember what it was do you have the full like assassination target web now yeah yeah with the with network. the cultist yeah, yeah, yeah. okay fine. yeah, yeah i've done that, that yeah, the, yeah okay i've had an argument with my brother and everything yeah <laughs> um yeah I'm, do, I'm doing that and that's all cool but like yeah i'm just it nothing of substance is really kind of I'm just, it's like popcorn i'm just playing around yeah but then yeah. i started thinking like you know blah, 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 you know that's just my experience but then i started thinking about what it'd be like to review this game <laughs> yeah, God, and i would i just reviews. cannot i cannot work out it's like trying to review a fucking city or something or country sort of, yeah <laughs> sort of what on earth do you say about it like because obviously you know this thing is so huge and made of so many components and there are kind of good bits and bad bits and there are bits that have you know you can see the amount of thought and 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 effort and, and energy that's gone into it and other bits where it just doesn't seem to come together and it's sort of like it's like sort of saying oh i'm going to review new york yeah like, well it's that like- bit you know that area is a bit shit but this road really nice and it's like <laughs> imagine and also, imagine i and i when i went there this was closed yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like yeah exactly yeah. i mean that's what like as i felt reviewing skyrim um, and that was, it's, it would have blown my mind at the time to, to, if you went back in time and told me like, oh yeah, this will seem like a relatively small open world game <laughs> compared yeah. to like the kinds of things you'll be playing in a few years. Uh, but, yeah, that was overwhelmingly place, huge. And it was, DLC, actually. I mean, the test of one of those games, I think is if you just sort of, I mean, for certainly for an Elder Scrolls game is you just walk in a direction and see what happens. And, and I was always like with Elder Scrolls, cause I knew that series, uh, pretty well and I loved it. And I knew that, that, the thing that was special about it was a thing that I, you know, got and understood. And it was also what other people responded about it. It wasn't the main quest. It was, it was just your own story. 
so I was happy to just sort of play it for X hours and then just review those X hours. Yeah, like, here's yeah. what happened in my particular experience. Yeah. And I'm yeah, exactly. I think I did complete the main quest in both Oblivion and Skyrim before reviewing it. But if I hadn't, I wouldn't have been worried about it because it's just that's not. I mean, a ninety percent of you are never going to do this because people just don't bother with it. It's not that it's especially long. It's just no one cares about the main quest. Um, and b there's just that's not the measure of it. That's not. Yeah, that's I think true. Assassin's Creed is much more story led. So you kind it of is, have but at the same time, it. it seems almost less like that you're completing. Like I'm nowhere near completing that, that main quest, and I played it for forty hours at least. But I think that you, but in in Skyrim, like you go off in a direction and you'll discover things that are that you will just never come across otherwise and, yeah. and emergent things whereas yeah, it's very player-directed. everything in like in, in assassin's creed you will come across one of the i don't know 10 types of things that they've developed <laughs> in the world like yeah. there'll be a fort and there'll be a this and there'll be a that and okay this is the thing and i know what to expect here and this is what i'll do here and and you know all of it i've enjoyed but I don't know. I just you almost need to play the entire plot and one of every type of submission. <laughs> yeah, like because I I reviewed Assassin's Creed Three, which was nightmarish Aye. because and that was an incredibly sprawling game, and that was an incredibly bad game as well. Yeah, like and well, not incredibly bad. It was just bad for that series, but but that one was a really shit one because I had to, uh, a couple of days to do it. But also, I really felt compelled to see the end because Assassin's Creed Three was obviously it doesn't feel like this now, but back in the day. Assassin's Creed had a, a story that was going from game to game. And at that point, it was a five-episode story because it was Assassin's Creed 1, 2, Brotherhood, Revelations, and 3. And there was one central mystery. You were Desmond. You know, it was this whole story. It was actually the same year that Mass Effect 3 concluded. And the series had been going for the same amount of time. And obviously, people were more attached to Mass Effect. But it, I was very conscious that, like, this is, an e- this is the end of a long series and what will they do with Desmond? What will they do with Desmond? <laughs> and so I felt compelled to finish it because um I felt that the review had to give some people a sense whether it was going to be a satisfying yeah. end or not. You know, now I think you wouldn't feel that pressure so much with the Assassin's Creed game because it's not got that weight of baggage. We'll have this all slightly embarrassed sort of um relationship with the overall arc. Yeah. Like, like <laughs> last night I some there was some revelation. I think I bumped into my brother or something. Anyway, the uh there was a it came out into the real into the into the present and uh there was a sort of conversation of a bit expositiony and then so uh you can wander around a room or you can go back in <laughs> like, yeah. okay we're not, gonna, we're not gonna force you to stay here <laughs> yeah we know have how you, you feel about it have you and this is not a spoiler have you really have you met your dad yet in odyssey no Okay, because it has the greatest oh. line of dialogue in the series. Well, I have on top of a kind of a cliff top. Oh no, not that one. <laughs> not that dad. <laughs> sad dad. <laughs> no, like that's your that's your sad Spartan dad. Sad Spartan dad. Sad yeah. about war. No, no, not that okay. one. Not All that right. one. Because it's one of my favourite bits of game writing in history. Maybe it, ironically, but it's I don't good. think I've got that far. Oh, it's such a good line. I wish I could just say it, but I can't. <laughs> um, um, yeah. yes. Anyway, um, the. But yeah, like three was miserable because it had so much stuff in it. And then like, I remember it like surfacing the naval combat, which was the first time the series had had that like yeah. halfway through the game. You're like, holy shit, this is great. Why is this here? Well, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, and then is this game good? Because this is good. No, <laughs> I'm not having fun with the rest of it, but I'm only having, am I not having fun because I'm rushing through it? Because reviewing Assassin's yeah, Creed game in three thing. days yeah. feels like reviewing someone else's month long holiday in three days yeah. Yeah. where you're like I fucking ran everywhere it was shit I was <laughs> <airport."> <laughs> so <laughs> didn't get time to eat yeah, yeah. Um, like and you know but I came but the luckily almost for me at the time the ending was so bad 
that I was like, no, this was shit. <laughs> <laughs> like, and I, I, I felt more confident in the score. I ended up giving it, but, but you, um, but yeah. you know that you're kind of like, but those C's, those C's were fucking amazing. Yeah. The same thing happens when you review an MMO. Never review an MMO. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, but yeah. I, I remember I've done a bunch of them and, and I remember because the problem with MMOs is, People have a concept of an end game now. Like, if you're reviewing MMOs yeah, back in the day, like early doors, pre World of Warcraft, then the experience was enough. Like, even if you only got to level four or something, like I spent 24 hours and I wanted and I got lots to do all this. As soon as MMOs became this content treadmill, they 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 gained tasting notes. It was like, you know, what is the the mid leveling experience like? And then when you get to the end game, how quickly does the malaise set in? Because <laughs> we'll accept that there'll be malaise, but it is like an early malaise or is it an acceptably late kind of and fug? And uh, it, you know, and is it accepting to new players as well? Like yeah. you have to fucking and so you have to get to the end, of it. The I remember, end of it. I remember reviewing the Elder Scrolls Online and oh, geez. just yeah. so sad. Because I didn't like it, and it was boring, and it was grey, and it was—I didn't like the story, and there was—but it was all. Well, I was just on this treadmill, and then feeling this like I've got to get to the end, or else I can't really review it. And I spent a long time on it, and I didn't get to the end. I got to like level thirty or something of fifty, and then had to write a review, and then found out subsequently, or could tell from looking at screenshots and other people's reviews that like most people clocked off at the same point or before, and you had to kind of accept that like I've played like 150 hours of this thing in a week and a half i haven't enjoyed myself would i recommend someone buy it <laughs> probably <Yeah>. not <laughs> like it doesn't matter if the end game is incredible because yeah was it worth that investment yeah no yeah yeah but anyway odyssey yeah i mean that that's i mean it's what i wanted to say because uh, it like it contrasts quite nicely with the with the in-depth uh rpg that i've been playing as well, mm. which starts on a large ship, uh, bloodstained. Ooh. <laughs> Circle of the moon, cover of the moon. Ritual, the ritual of the night. Ritual of the brain. <laughs> yeah. Can't remember what it's called. Sing song of the Dracula. That's what they're all called. Sing the song of the Dracula. Um, yeah. love it. It's real good. Real good. What is it? So Can't this is, it. this is uh, the not Castlevania by the man who done, uh, the, the, the free ranging, uh, Castlevania's, uh, Igarashi. As opposed to those battery-farmed Castlevanias. Yeah. <laughs> well, the original Castlevanias was like linear sets of levels. Like, yeah. But then, so he made, um, uh, uh, Symphony of the Night. And that was the first one that was an open, Fine. an open castle, you know, bounded by abilities, you know, which kind of, and, um, and so he's made one which is fundamentally the same game. Uh, feels very, very similar. I mentioned it. When I was asked on the pod, um, it's talking about tohu. Tohu. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you pronounce I think, it? Isn't it tohu? To, I, don't I don't know. That's not tohu. Tohu, I think. Tohu. Tohu. I Sorry, everyone who knows. <laughs> Please let us know. Send a recording. All we know is we were wrong. We don't know how to get But yeah, uh, Bloodstained is like you are a, uh, a magician, magician-y lady, and you have a twin brother who's a magician-y man, and the bad stuff Check happened so because there are demons and 
for some reason you're to do with that, I think that you might have opened a rift with the with the demons or something, or there mm. might be a danger that you do. Anyway, all of your magician uh, people have been killed, but you haven't because you uh, fell into a slumber at the point at which some mm. big ritual was held. I think blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah. uh, So basically, you, you are going into uh, your you brother's been to a gone bad. So bad, you just went to sleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the story is 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 non-existent. Uh, but and but you basically are going to go and hunt down your your twin brother who's gone bad because he's a nasty demon has gone inside. Did you say you choose which whether you're a brother uh, or sister? No, okay, no so you are. You are just her. And, um, and you run into the castle and it's a great big castle for you to, uh, to run through. Have you ever, have you, Tom, ever played a Castlevania game? Uh, not an actual Castlevania game, but I played a lot of Metroidvania games. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the, this, so the, the Castlevania take on it is, is about giving you weapons. Uh, it's RPG laden. So you have, um, some degree of stats. You have lots of different weapons. There will be each of which handle very, very differently. There'll be very slow, uh, great, great swords, which kind of attack in a big arc, but they're slow, slow to start and set up. There'll be fast swords, which sort of some of them have a thrust on it. it each of them has a very interest, you know, specific attack profile, I suppose you call, call it. And you're very, very powerful compared to most of the monsters that you'll meet. So in general terms, so going through rooms, which restock as soon as you go out and return into them, you are just slashing your way through rooms and the monsters are almost there just as a, a, a nice feeling thing to cut mm. your way through as you're mm. kind of running through the castle. And this really captures that, like, and the weapons are all, they all feel great. It's one of those games where, when you've got a weapon and you like it, you know, you've been using it for a while, it becomes like, why wouldn't I ever use, why would I ever stop using this weapon? And then a more powerful weapon of a different type comes along and you go, oh, I suppose I'll try it. And you fucking hate it to start with. And then, well, I don't know why I ever didn't use this one before. And like, it's, it, you know, and there are loads and loads and loads of weapons and some of them have quite special effects. I've, I'm, I'm very partial to a sword, which, which I found kind of, located quite you know up in a secret bit to the side so it's got that also a feeling of kind of forbiddenness about mm. it and this sword when you throw it 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 um projects out almost to the other side of the screen you're in the middle of the screen almost to the other side of the screen uh horizontally and then loops up into the air swirling around and then back down into your hand so you can you can destroy enemy, enemies in this enormous loop and if as you're running along hitting something right in front of you and then killing the things that are coming down from above you felt great and mm. it was somewhat like you know mastering that stuff was really nice um does it feel because that was off the beaten path does it feel like more personal to you oh it's definitely like, definitely you not every player would have this i got yeah. this because i did and then you realize that oh everyone's yeah <laughs> <laughs> um uh and the way that the castle actually i found the way that the uncast the castle kind of un unlocks and sort of opens up most of it fairly obvious where mm. you know, I, I don't know like there is a, a, a metrovania thing where like you can sometimes get so blocked because you've missed the li the one little hint to yeah. the place that you're meant to use this new ability that you may or may or not have pegged that you've got. And there's one point where I just completely missed it and I had to look it up. But um, in general, it's opened up really nicely. And, you know, this sort of sense of expansion and kind of, you know, you're new running through these areas and are very re rarely underleveled for any particular area. Um, and 
the, th- the thing I have in Metroidvanias a lot is like I get to a thing I don't seem to be able to get past, but I'm because it's a Metroidvania, it's always in the back of my head of like maybe I can oh, and right. I haven't figured it out, or maybe I just need something. And this I, one, quite a few th- times, I'm often like. I give up on something really quickly because I think, oh, I just don't have the tool. And then yeah. later I discover, oh, no, that's just the thing. If you hit it enough, it breaks. <laughs> yeah, I think this one's qu- this one's quite clear about the things. They're usually just <laughs> gates. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, or, you know, there's um, there's a watery area that you just you just can't get under the water. Right. And you go, oh, clearly there's something that will let me sink, you know. Um, uh, but... Um, and it's got a really good sort of balance. They've put save rooms exactly where you need them, just when you're starting to get a little bit panicky about the fact that you haven't been to a set, you've mm. deep into a new area and you haven't saved recently. Just a big load of schnapps in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, you know, there's, it's clearly been made by experts, you know, somebody who, you know, directed by someone who, who understands the, the right things to go for. It's a very conservative game. If, if you've played, especially really, it's really, for me, it's really redolent of the, the DS and the GBA, uh, Castlevanias, which are very much about when you defeat an e- enemy, there is a, a certain percentage chance that it's, well, it's called shard in this one, but as its soul will go into you and then you'll get an, a certain ability, which you can kit out. So you basically make a build, uh, which you can freely swap in and out of lots of abilities. There are, a lot of enemies and i don't understand how they've come up with all the like most of like the equivalent of uh throw a fireball in front but it's kind of slightly different themes you know but it's um do you you come up with a loadout how many of these you slotting at once you got five and they're all there's so there'll be there'll be there's a there's a sort of like a direct attack one which is on it on the trigger there's um a sort of a support it's called a manipulative one which i don't still don't really understand the kind of the, the terminology <laughs> for but that's on the the right bumper there's a there's a passive which doesn't continue also like improve your sword ability mm. you know increases damage and speed and that kind of thing or more, more interesting ones and there are some other ones that sort of you know so here i have um I have on the Y button, that's like a sort of mostly defensive ones. Uh, I go around with a selection of paintings which revolve around me. Uh, and, uh, and av- as the paintings hit stuff, um, enemies, they deal damage <laughs> and they will also, uh, uh, defend me against uh, projectiles if one of them is revolving and faces just at the point that protection is. Did you get this by beating up a lot of paintings? I literally did <laughs> attack some paintings. It's called the Poltergeist. Uh, it's in all of the Castlevania games. You know, I've learned a lot games. about paintings by beating up these paintings. And what's best now is the paintings will work for me. The paintings are clearly of really specific people. Like they're not just sort of like, you know, sort of generic sort of renaissance look. Huh. They're obviously portraits of people. And this was a, this was a crowdfunded, like this was a Kickstarter right. back game. It's, they're so clearly. Yeah. Uh, Pictures kick, of backers. Kick, backers. <laughs> so good. And they're revolving around me and I'm going around. <laughs> I have a, well, for a long time I had, um, I can't remember what it's called, but I, uh, a book, uh, a book with a human skin with a face in it that flapped around my head all the time. And this thing would give me buffs, like it would just buff stats as, as you're going around and sometimes deals damage if it tend, if it happens to fly into enemies. Is the face in the book a Kickstarter backer? <laughs> yeah, I would hope so. The <laughs> very, the very tier. old, <laughs> Be the wrinkled, ugly man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, 
uh, and this thing, um, writing and whenever you save, writing another page of your history. <laughs> Every time you save is so good. I love him. Uh, but I swapped him out for the silver knight because I managed to level up my silver knight and this thing just goes and hits things fairly ineffectually and sometimes defends you, but it's, 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 it's good enough. Um, but it's like you get a loadout and you sort of, again, it's like the weapons. You have all these weapon choices and you have these loadout, but like, suddenly you really love the dragon that shoots fire in front of you because it's massive damage dealer. Um, and I've just had a blast. Um, uh, I've come to several endings, <laughs> as in like planned kind of game endings. Mm. It's quite playful with that. With the series is playful as like since um, Symphony of the Night has been quite playful with its um, endings and this is no, this kind of follows that. So I won't, I won't spoil what, what kind of, what goes on with all that, but it's a bigger game than it should. But it's, I mean, like basically you look at this percentage completion of, of how much you've, um, you've explored and like you come against the old end boss and it says 50%. And like, <laughs> you know, it's not exactly a spoiler to say is that it probably isn't the end. Is that percentage on screen at all times? No, it's only when you go into the okay. pause menu. Yeah. Right. I've actually was meaning to play it, but it's, um, it's full price, isn't it? There's a, I expect so. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It's it's a very sort of compulsive game because it has a sense of kineticness. At the start, it feels like you're moving quite slowly, but but um, you can actually increase your speed somewhat. But but actually, you know, the, you're just constantly moving from room to room to room, and it's got this pace rhythm to it, which yeah. you just oh, I just smash up a few more creatures, smash up a few more creatures. Oh, I got some more stuff. I got some more stuff. And there's so much, mm. you can make cakes. You, <laughs> wow, you can make turn. curries. <laughs> You can make like these are sort of stat buff. They they improve. They they kind of recoup health, but they also buff your stats. Sort of, there's so many fucking systems in it, which a lot of them are totally redundant. Like a lot of the, there are so many weapons. Like a lot of the fundamental weapon types are obviously, you know, they're sort of, you know, developed and, and worth trying out. But there are loads of weapons within each of these things. It's like wow. You don't need this particular weapon that I found in there. Like, sort of, don't need all of these different shards and do all these different abilities. I'm never going to try them all out. And I'm not going to cook everything in this recipe book. And there are, what, 400 creatures or something. Like, oh, good God. So good, though. (laughs) (laughs) What have you been up to, Tom? Uh, I've been playing Griftlands, which mm. I mentioned on this pod before, but I wasn't allowed to talk about it at that point because I'd just been sort of beta testing it. Uh, but it's now in public alpha, um, on the Epic store. This is Clay's new game. who mm. did, um, mm. Invisible Ink and, uh, Oxygen Not Included and Don't Starve. Um, and Shadow the Ninja. Mark, Mark the, the Ninja. Ninja. Mark the Ninja. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's, there's shadows in it, but, <laughs> um, and I was very pleased that this game uh, came about because it's it's like Clay going back to games that I like because <laughs> I don't like management games really or so, sort of, you know, make your people survive or make one person survive. I don't want anyone to survive really. <laughs> so don't starve and oxygen not included, not really my thing. Um, and I I think I kind of thought they would never go back from those because right, those are mega huge, successful. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's just, it is just a genre that, you know, if you hit it big, you hit it big forever. Some people just love to survive. It's just yeah, they just love surviving. They don't, they don't stop surviving. Um, but Grifflands is not that. It's a RPG, uh, single player. Um, it's, it's actually was going to be a sort of open world RPG and it's, it, they redesigned it after announcing it um and now it's a sort of roguelike rpg 
but it's very much um an attempt to meld a kind of story driven uh uh yeah rpg with slay the spire um and in particular, it's Fantasy World. I'm annoying. I can't remember if I made this joke last time, so I apologize if I did. But <laughs> it's Fantasy World. It's a very colorful, sort of offbeat, weird one like Pyre. And it has that kind of mm. interesting characters you meet. So it's kind of like a Slay the Pyre. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, the, the big, my big problem with Pyre was I just didn't enjoy the actual combat game or, you know, the sport game that you were playing. It was a narrative interrupted by this, this uh, single, uh, sport that I never really enjoyed. And this is that, but the single sport is fucking Slay the Spire, which is the thing I most enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, a lot of potential. Um, it's really trying, it's really aiming for that forbidden ground between story driven and replayable. Like mm-hmm. that is, those are the two things that, you know, no one's ever really mixed in a, in a totally satisfying way. Um, in that it's, you know, a, it has a pre-written story. It also tries to make the story dynamic and it's slay the spiriness, uh, is a thing that you, that wants to be replayed and wants to have permadeath and high stakes and, oh my God, I, I just built my build wrong and now I'm fucked. That kind of thing. Uh, which is difficult to fit with a narrative thing. And my first run of it was brilliant because I, Went for, so one of the interesting things about it that's different to either of those games is that you can both, uh, if you fight people, then you play a Slay the Spire type game that's very similar to Slay the Spire. But if you, uh, you can also talk your way through some quests and the negotiate mini game is also a Slay the Spire type card game, mm. but different one. And so in the combat game, it's very much Slay the Spire, except you can have allies on your side, which you can't in Slay the Spire. Um, but then negotiate, you, Still get dealt a hand of cards each t- each turn. It's obviously a different set of cards to what you get in combat. Uh, you only ever have one opponent, and you are always alone. Um, and you're still attacking like a certain pool of health that they have, and you have a certain pool of health, but it's resolve, not not your actual hit points. Um, and it's sort of resolve is kind of like your willingness to fucking carry on at all. <laughs> <laughs> like it's it's very much the theming is really good for the negotiation game because every card, you know, instead of being like a strike or attack, it's sort of a line of argument and a different, you know, one of them is will be threaten and one of them will be reason and one of them will be plead. Actually, I don't think plead is in it anymore, but um I really liked plead because it was um uh most of them have like a, a big range of damage they could do like one to f- threaten is very variable so this is there are all these w- interesting little assumptions coded into how this is how the des- the design of these cards works so if i threaten you i i c- will do anywhere between one and five damage it could be very little or it could be a lot uh so basically threats are risky and if i use i'm calling it reason but i don't think that's its real name but something something non-hostile a friendly argument um, it's sort of two to three. So it's much more reliable, but it can never be as good as, as a threaten. Um, and then plead, I think was just like very consistent, but very low, <laughs> um, <laughs> persuasiveness. Like please. it's always a little please. bit persuasive when someone's just like, Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> please. But of course this whole like game is designed agnostic to like what you are trying to persuade them to do. Cause right. it could be like, you've been sent to talk this person out of, uh, quitting their job or you've been sent to um persuade this person to uh give forgive a debt or the very person who just gave you this mission you've just gone back to them and say you can have some more money <laughs> and that's a negotiate minigame that you please. play yeah please please threaten please <laughs> there's shades of i have to say there's shades of oblivion here yeah yeah um it, it's better than that in that 
like if you just played the basic cards in sort of random alternating order it would be like i'm threatening you now i'm complimenting you now i'm threatening you now i'm complimenting <laughs> you um but but it wouldn't work like that is not an effective strategy if you actually want to win a negotiate you have to sort of lean into one of these tacks or the other and you uh the same way that you play a power in slay the spire that that buffs a certain kind of thing for the rest of the fight mm. um in this uh if you have influence um which is often sort of the theming of that is like you have some secret dirt on them or you have some kind of information um right. you have some power over them then all of your uh reasoning cards all your sort of friendly lines of reasoning do maximum damage so whatever their range is that does the maximum of those and so the basic one that's better than it normally was but there are also some others that have a very high range and so once you have influence these cards are super effective they always work because you have this, this secret information or you can build up dominance and dominance makes all of your threatening cards, all of your hostile cards more powerful, but dominance fades over time. So again, the theming is really interesting because it's like, if you really intimidate someone, if you sort of, you know, um, scare them a bit, it will make all your threats more effective, but it will wear off. Like if you just keep threatening, even though they were scared of you, it gets less and less effective the more you do it. It's like, well, it doesn't hit me. And <laughs> keep saying, oh. Hmm. Um, so my first run, I, uh, I was, so, so I know, do you build up, um, influence and dominance outside of that card game? No, or just, it, it's no. like a power in Slayer's Bio. It just lasts for the rest of the fight. Right, but you do, of course, uh, choose new cards for these decks over time. And so mm. you can spec your deck towards one thing or the other. Um, I'm just really good at pleading. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is there a, yeah, is there a bar for pleading? But no, I don't think like the plead cards. Costs. I haven't seen the yeah. plead cards. <laughs> 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 I haven't seen the plead please, card in a long please. time. Please. <laughs> okay. I think that was only in early builds. I think I've changed it to something else maybe. But, um, uh, my first run, I, so in the combat game, there's another little mechanic, which is when you get someone to low health, they'll surrender and, uh, their surrender threshold will be like their last 12 hit points or something. And they have 50 in total. So it's not hard to, to, uh, get them into that and then let them surrender. You know, if you, if it's only one opponent, as soon as they get in that, it's just a choice. Do you want to execute them or do you want to spare them? And I was always sparing everybody. Until, um, one of the people I spared in one of these sort of dynamic story events, um, uh, I was walking down the road to the my next quest and it's just on a map. You just sort of see yourself move around the map, um, in a very zoomed out way. Uh, but there's sort of not quite random encounters, but there are encounters along the journey. You're trying to get to, to place X, but instead of just instantly appearing there, you move along this path and then something can happen along the way. And the thing that happened along the way was the guy I just fucking spared ambushed me with a bunch of his friends and it was a way tougher fight. And so when I got him down to surrender threshold, I was like, no fucker, <laughs> I've learnt my lesson. I am killing you. And when I killed him, I got a card that was, I think it was just called killer and it's a negotiation card. And, uh. um, every time I draw it, all of my friendly lines of reasoning become less effective and all of my threatening things get more effective. Because um, they remember that you're the guy. Everyone who... knows I'm a killer now. Everyone knows, yeah. oh, the, like this guy who crossed, uh, my character's called Sal. Uh, it's like a, a fixed character. Um, and, you know, this guy who crossed Sal, she just fucking killed him. <laughs> so yeah, if she threatens you, she fucking means it. Which is funny because I yeah, never meant cool. it. <laughs> like all the other negotiations I've been bluffing, but there's one guy I did kill. <laughs> um, and from then on, uh, I was really good at negotiating. So it's like, I got it by killing somebody, which is a combat thing. I did a combat thing, but it made me wait, maybe so good at negotiation. Cause I, I was, I think I'd already accidentally specced my negotiating deck kind of into hostile cards. And then I was just like, fuck it, get rid of all the friendly cards. I'm never going to reason with anybody ever again. I'm just going to threaten them because I'm really good at it now. Um, and that of course made me better at it. Cards in this game upgrade the more you use them. So, 
unlike Slay the Spire, where there's fixed upgrade points, this, if you use a, a threatened card like six times, you get a, you can either upgrade it to a threatened card that always does max damage, or you can do one that has a bigger range of damage. So its max damage is even higher, but it's still random. That kind of thing. Does that feel good? Yeah, it, it does. Um, it means that, you know, you have those rounds in a Slay the Spire type game where, for example, they're not attacking you and you get dealt maybe one attack card and a bunch of defense cards. In Slay the Spire, you play the attack card and you, you end your turn. In this, I think I'm right in saying you should play those defense cards because you want them to level up, right? It's yeah. using them in some way, even if they're Practice never... time. Yeah. <laughs> you're not going to attack Easily. Here's how I would defend if I, if I were going to be attacked. Yeah. So that's a little bit weird, but it's not, you know, it's not like an exploit or anything. It doesn't make you play conservatively. No, you you still always. I mean, the, by far the biggest priority is get through this round with a mm. few the least damage taken possible. Um, but yeah, I also got um, right after that. I joined. You have this choice of like, do you want to join the cops or the criminals? And um, uh, to, for your future work, this will be your main employer for the rest of the um, the run. And I was very curious how they would handle you being a cop. So I joined the cops to see what it was like. And one of the, as soon as you join, you get like a choice of sort of sign up bonuses. And the one I chose was Frisk, which means in a negotiation, I just play this card once. It's like a power. And in negotiation from then on, every turn, I just take 10 gold from them. I'm just getting money from them every like single the turn. Like the thieves inside the spire, okay. Uh, yeah, but just all the time. And so the key thing about it is that now I don't want to win the negotiation really quickly, which is the thing I was really good at. And now I'm so good at negotiation, I can win a negotiation really fast. But now I actually want it to keep going on and on and on because the longer it goes, the more money I bleed out of them. Um, and so. It's a weird definition of frisking, I've got to say. <laughs> while I'm talking German. Like, yeah. Like, another five, please. <laughs> but that one power just totally changed my negotiation game. And so, yeah, I just ended up this really weird character where I, I got, I killed this one guy one time and it made me so good at threatening that I pivoted totally into threatening and now I'm this person who just who never has to kill basically. I just always get in my way by talking people out of things and talking people into talking people out of them really slowly. <laughs> yeah. But I'm also <laughs> stealing all your money while I'm doing it because now I've got the authorities behind me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just imagine like oh, I don't I don't really care, but I did kill that guy that one time and the pound slides across the table. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it does kind of it's a great game for like reading the narrative into it because it yeah, is like yeah. I I was already people were doing what I say because I killed this guy and now I'm asking them for money and they're like, shit, well she did kill that guy, so I guess I hand it over. Um uh and then it, it's the campaign is it's, I think it's like five days or maybe four days and a a day will be sort of like three or four different missions and a mission might involve several or one or two combat and negotiation things and it remixes all these things every time you play so it mm. is it is pretty random uh which characters are offering you jobs what those jobs are but they do fall into very familiar templates there's always um you'll keep getting jobs where it's like oh this person uh, was supposed to give me a package and they didn't and you've got to go and get that package or i need to pick this up but i'm not allowed to go there so you need you to go there and then you've got to persuade the bartender and if they won't if you can't persuade them you can fight them instead so there's very familiar templates um and then there's a main story where you're, there's this one person you're trying to hunt um, uh, who's like a local crime lord and they are going to show up at the end of every day for some story thing. That Playing that again and again does... I mean, I just skip the dialogue every time and it's it's there's a boss fight at the end of each day pretty much um, and that part becomes a bit over-familiar. There's mm. something different about... Even though there's a boss at the end of every act in Slayer's Spire, A, it's, it's very different each run. In this, I think it's slightly different. I think there were two different assassins who might show up at the end of a certain day. Um, 
but it's still it's a story event it's this certain fixed point it's in product, the story it's a product of a story as opposed to you know what you're meant to be doing yeah it's not what as replayable as um as slow aspire is I mean, does, does that does that story change over over the over time as you kind of i mean does it have um permanent development across runs no you unlock right. card packs and you unlock outfits for your character um but all this that i've been playing is just one character with one campaign and they have two more characters to announce which will be each character will be its own class so its own deck of cards um and its own story that it's trying to play through i, I assume in the same area i actually don't know if it's in the same area maybe it's maybe it's not um and so right now, when I finish a run with this character, my only choice is to play again as that character doing the same story with the same class, the same deck of cards and everything. Mm. And I, there are ways to shift into different decks within that class, but um, I can see the replayability going way up once there's three of them. Once it's like, oh, I just, Sal is kind of a rogue and I just died as the rogue trying to defeat Cassio and uh, who's the crime boss. Um, and now I'm going to play as, I don't know, the fucking wizard <laughs> i'm sure they're a wizard <laughs> it's bound to be a wizard uh, and if the wizard is trying to do something totally different then that'll be interesting there's i had a really nice moment with the dynamic story stuff where um i was in a bar and um you, over time you form relationships with those people if you do a job for someone they like you um if you then like do a favor for them uh, one of the random events that will happen is that you, after you just finish a mission um there are some missions you can move on to but there will be some sort of time sensitive events like oh there's this battlefield you might want to loot before anyone else does or this person who likes you is wounded and needs your help and if you go and help them you have to fight off some people um but if you do that now they love you and you get a bonus for that there's just like love dislike and hate those are the four statuses i'm gonna have towards i guess neutral as well um but i was having a negotiation with somebody in a bar and i think um I was trying to persuade them to do something. I just, I had no resolve and I had to just sort of give up on the negotiations side of it and fight them. And when I fought them, um, just like four people came to my aid and joined in the fight. And I realized like, oh yeah, like the first person I worked for is, is in this bar at this, at this particular moment. The bouncer is actually someone I made friends with like three stages ago. This fourth guy, I don't really know who he is, but apparently he loves me for some reason. <laughs> and they're all just like, oh, you want to fuck with Sal? Like, you know, they have a relationship with you and they will just jump in the fight with you. And that now I'm, I can easily win because I have all these people on my side. That's cool. Yeah. That was really cool. And we want to play this actually. Yeah. It's, um, would you recommend playing it now or waiting actually? That's it. You probably should wait. Uh, like I, it's actually changed a lot even since I last played it. I tried to play it the other day and I just had two runs in a row where within two or three fights, I was just the whole, whole campaign was over because I just, all the instincts I've learned are wrong now. Like negotiation it used to be the same game pretty much every time. Now, if you're negotiating for pay, instead of trying to, instead of them having like 25 resolve and you've just got to win the fight and then you get a bonus on your pay, they have 10 resolve, which is super easy to beat. And then they have all these, in the negotiation game, you have arguments, which kind of orbit your normal health thing. And they're almost like minions. So an argument can attack by itself and it also has its own health bar. Um, some of them don't attack. Uh, <laughs> and orbited by bad takes even now. <laughs> yes. There's a lot of like a paintings. In- <laughs> right, oh, nice. Can you imagine what a painting normally does in the world? That's what an argument does in this. Um, and in an, when now when you're negotiating for pay, the person just has a sort of bunch of bounties around them, basically, which are these, these arguments that don't do anything, but when you destroy them, you, that adds to your pay now. So this one is worth 30 bucks, and this one's worth 20 bucks, and this one's worth um, whatever. Yeah, right. But they, and they only have 10 health, so you, you want to target those 
bounties to get the money. Um, but by doing so, you're not reducing their health. Can you threaten the bounty specifically? <laughs> yeah, you can threaten a bounty. <laughs> like, can... I hate the idea that you expected me to pay for my own petrol. <laughs> I think, I think the narrativization there would be like, I'm, I'm saying, if you don't give me that much money, I'm gonna fuck you. Right, up. I see. And, yeah. it, and if it's a plead, then it's, please give me that much money. Please give me 30. Please, please. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I was not used to this particular, Thing. And also, every time you destroy a bounty, all of their damage goes up for the rest of the fight dramatically. And so, if you can destroy a whole bunch in one turn, that'd be great, but that's not really viable. So you destroy one, then next turn is way harder. And if you still choose to target a bounty, okay, you got it, but now you also made it extra hard, and you haven't done any damage to their resolve yet. So there's 10 resolve, which to me seemed easy, because my all my expectations are tuned from the previous build. Um, I actually end up losing literally all of my resolve in the first encounter. In the ring. <laughs> like I just, and when you're out of resolve, it's, it's not game over. You just can't be fucked with anything. <laughs> like anyone who's like, oh, I need you to go and like ask for this puzzle back. It's not a big deal. It's just I can't go into this particular bar because I'm banned. I just need to pick it up. And you go there and like, I can't persuade you at all. I have to kill you to get it. <laughs> I'm so done with this shit. <laughs> I can only murder people. <laughs> so yeah, it probably. I mean, right now that this one campaign and the one character, uh, even that campaign is not completely in there. The final boss is not there. So you can get almost all the way there. Mm. Um, but you can't finish it yet. So probably once that first campaign is in, uh, in a year's time, it's going to begin Steam early access. <laughs> so this is, this is alpha, which is not early access. It's like they've done this for their previous games. Uh, it's just the earliest phase that they want to have public playing it. Um, and it's only on Epic at the moment. So in a year's time, it'll be early access and, and Steam. I think you'll play it well before that. I think um, once all of this character is in, it'll be well worth checking out. I look forward to playing this on, I'm talking about it in Crate and Crowbar 360-something. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. Someone will let me know if I'm right about that. <laughs> I guess like they're running Oxygen Not Included and Don't Starve yeah, right. and Don't Starve Together. Like those are all active ongoing games. Yeah. And so making a whole new thing as well. And one that's proved very difficult, I think, because they've redesigned it, mm. you know, almost from scratch. So, um, I can understand why it's going to be slow. Have you been playing something else, Chris? Yeah. So I can talk about something else I've been playing, um, a little bit of, which I think we talked about in the pub before. So I won't go super deep on it, but I've been playing. Uh, Warhammer 40,000 Mechanicus. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. Um, have we all played? Yeah. Uh, yep, I have. Yep. Yeah. Um, which I really, really like. Um, again, it was one of those Steam Cell kind of purchases, but, um, really impressed with it. So it's sort of, um, Warhammer XCOM, but for a very specific faction, which is the, uh, the Adeptus Mechanicus, which are basically the big nerds of Warhammer and Warhammer 40,000 and, it's, I think the one thing I would say about it is, uh, well, for one, actually, um, there's a lot of Warhammer games out there and, and presentations are real mixed bag across a lot of them. And I think it's actually, uh, a game that has made a bunch of really big, bold decisions about how to present that setting, mm. which I love. Yeah. And fucking nailed it. And yeah. like actually puts quite a few to shame because there's a bunch of orthodoxies in play here. Um, one, one thing actually separate to that is that the soundtrack's great. Like, so, this, yeah, so, so like fittingly that, um, Warhammer, like the, the company has used in its trailers some of the music from yeah. Mechanicus. Well, they also use music from, um, the Total War games as well. Yeah. I like, told the team, I said, Oh, did you know that, that you're, really? Really? <laughs> yeah. 
because it's this great mix of like really heavy synths and like but the same kind of like gothic kind chanting, of choral monks. chanting over the top yeah. it's great but the other great decision they've made is there's a universal truth of of warhammer games and, and indeed and it stems from warhammer audiobooks which is that this is what you commit british character actors to doing right <laughs> like everyone in in the 40th or the 41st millennium is well we've joked about this minute monthly plenty but is mark strong basically fundamentally and um the strongest mark and um but like there's this sense of like it's a lot of people going inquisitor and and then and and he's saying yes and then someone deeply intoning the word exterminatus like and and that's mostly it um and it's great but yeah this has and there's a really specific thing so it's there's a lot of text between different members of the mechanicum um, but it's, uh, not, it is voiced, but it's voiced in the way that Animal Crossing is voiced, yeah. <laughs> which is the best decision yeah. anyone yeah. has ever made. If you're not familiar with what I mean by that, in Animal Crossing, <clears throat> to the, uh, there is the text, which is often very witty and fun, is voiced, but by basically what sounds like an, like a, it's a, it's a text to speech thing. It just goes, and it's like that and it's great in animal crossing it's a little bibbly cartoon animal saying this um mechanicus crosses this principle with the gothic <laughs> horror of the 41st millennium and the sound of a 56k modem connecting <laughs> so every <laughs> and so every member of the mechanicus and they all have different voices which is incredible whenever they quote unquote speak right where the text appears on the screen it's this kind of like and someone else disagrees but in like high gothic and it's you can tell it's amazing i don't know how <laughs> they've done totally this. and it's totally unfitting because like just to just to point out that these tech priests of the adeptus mechanicus are mostly machine yeah. and their psyches are sort of melded into sort of well the internet software yeah, yeah. like and yeah they they have and it is uh, i you know like love good writing about people who are somewhat robots and it has really good kind of evocation in lots of different ways like the, one thing it does really well is there's not one type of like arch magos of the adaptus mechanicus like some people like um the you the you the main character like the arch magos dominus that you are playing um you know explicitly refers to retrieving the emotions that he's feeling <laughs> from the part of his data core that he has stored them in so like i am feeling sympathy for these dead troops but i have chosen to retrieve it but only for this purpose it's 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 really good it's really like, consistent the writing's really sharp yeah. but also just the the, the sort of blah, 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 blah. like i realized you can you can maybe express all of that setting with just those noises and maybe even most settings <laughs> but yeah there's something about it that's really charming and so that that game is just so smartly designed for all that because yeah. you know it's so thickly atmospheric um but with actually a, a very like relatively small number of assets like you mm. don't see many different things and places and hear many actual different things but they're just so smartly used yeah like there's again just really clever little decisions so you're fighting the Necrons, who are the other nerds of Warhammer 40,000. You've got skeleton robot nerds from the past and skeleton robot nerds from the present, basically. <laughs> um, and, um. They didn't know anything about Warhammer when they started making that game. Really? Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> so they basically crazy. bought all of the codexes and thought, what? which one are we going to choose? So the writer was, is a Black Library author. Yeah, so they yeah did but that's get... subsequent because they were pitching. So they were, they were asked to pitch for a, 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 a Games Workshop game. 
But that's what's great about it, because it feels like someone... <laughs> the obvious thing is, like, people do Space Marine games, and the fact that it's not that, and it's this other weird yeah. side of the Imperium is great. But yeah, the but the other thing is, you, you know, as you're exploring these little dungeons, you get these little sort of um, uh, choose-your-own-adventure sort of moments. And it's even little decisions, like, they only have so many pieces of art for the inside of Necron tomb complexes, but they're sort of overlaid to make them look like the sort of helmet cams from the little Skitarii you know, warriors that you're ushering to their doom and things. The fact that mechanically your tech priests are the only things that matter and your troops are beamed in and out, um, you know, and, and are sort of disposable is both really true to the setting, but also a really interesting mechanic to introduce to the next, to the XCOM formula, because it means that you have essentially a, a core group of leader characters that you level up and get equipment for and care about. And then you unlock new types of troops, but individual troops don't mean anything, which is like, I found quite a nice brain divide for like, I'll worry about these guys. And I worry a lot about these guys, but I can sacrifice troops for the cause. And it's not a disaster in the way that it can feel like an XCOM where losing anyone, even yeah. if they're a rookie, feels like potential's being cut off. And that's true for the setting. Cause it's like, oh, this was a servitor. You know, servitors actually generate resources for you when they get hit because you learn something about the nature of which they've been destroyed. Yeah. So like it's, but it's also a cool mechanic because in an XCOM style game with that kind of campaign structure, you want to send troops out into the line of fire sometimes to save the rest. It just always feels bad because every unit you have represents some potential progression path or future resource. And in this case, it's like, no, sorry, that's his lot. Like we grafted him to a crane already. He's never going to get any better than that. Like he's half man, half forklift. This is what he was born for. <laughs> like we're not born for horrendously, <laughs> horrendously rendered into. Rendered into. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like. There's some, uh, you know, sort of. It, it is an XCOM kind of uh, derivative, but like really fresh for it. Like yeah. The so you are basically that the number of action points you have in a turn wildly fluctuates depending on what your choices are like there are ways of generating mm. action points or saving action points between turns and so basically you are <laughs> planning turns according to the number of you know what you can glean out of the of the level for for that turn and then what what abilities you have available to you at that time what's on cooldown what isn't and like so it feels you could feel really fucking smart in this one because yeah. it's very puzzle gamey. And also extremely fucking dumb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got into a weird situation with the, I think it's sort of like a tutorial or introductory level where, uh, it's pretty much plain sailing and then like the Necron kayak shows up. <laughs> like, the, the, yeah, like a torso yeah, exactly. and, a, yeah. <laughs> and a floaty thing. Half a man, half a, half a canoe. <laughs> yep. Uh, <laughs> And it's like it's mega boss and it's got an intimidating amount of health and it's super powerful. But then it got stuck in some kind of weird thing where it would always spend its turn switching what kind of damage it was tuned to do or, oh, right. or what kind of damage it could resist, maybe. Oh, like it, it has these two types and it can either be yeah. super resistant to one or super resistant to the other. And it would just switch that every turn. And so, okay, sure, I'm a little bit like have to adjust my theory but honestly i can do both these kinds of damage so <laughs> i'm not too flummoxed by this i will just do that kind of damage did so you kill it because yeah. you're meant to lose that fight yeah it kind you're of meant to flee right like i won it but by fleeing right oh really okay yeah yeah it felt like a, a force well except that uh it got stuck in this weird loop so i eventually just <laughs> whittled it down <laughs> on. yeah that's a bit of a weird decision because it, it tells you to flee that level and i beat that level by feeding that Necron Destroyer servitors from various angles while the two tech priests ran away, which was a really good, like, 
feeling across multiple turns of like, yep. They would cool. do that. Yeah. Um, and then, but it was like, but then that is the end of the tutorial. So it says like, well, those got away, but it doesn't matter. Here are your new ones. <laughs> like, um, yeah, like, uh, um, the other thing I really love about that resource mechanic, actually, what you're talking about, the action points, I think it's really clever is, uh, your troops cost action points. So you can gain action points in the time between battles, you know, those choose your own adventure moments on the world map and other kind of decisions you make. And then when you go into the battle, you choose whether to kind of like pre-invest some of those action points in deploying straight off the bat or saving them so you can use special abilities or um, saving them so you can deploy at the end of the round, which is also great. Like it's got so many different, yeah. like, yeah, if it's got, um, it's easy to describe it as a kind of XCOM like, but I think as a little street grid based strategic game, it's got loads of ideas I haven't really seen anywhere else like yeah. in terms of yeah bringing in reinforcements gaining resources like the fact that you you predominantly your resource the resource we're talking about really is information um, and so you can harvest it from points on the map and you'll auto harvest it if you're standing next to them so holding that position is really good for you but you can also harvest it by sending a servo skull which is a skull that's also a flying robot to go and harvest it for you but that is also denying your ability to scan the enemy like the fact that you can't see enemy health bars or resistances only intuit them until you explicitly scan them or shoot them with a scanning type gun (laughs) (laughs) um is again great like you're always making these little trade-offs and actually for a game of this type all those trade-offs feel quite different to the types of trade-offs you make in other games and very on theme which is yeah just a big old success, really. That's how you make that game, I think. Yeah. It, it did really well as well, I believe. Hmm. But yeah, there's a there's a expansion coming out soon. Yeah, called Heretech, which is I can see what they <laughs> did there. Yeah, well, the thing is it good. Warhammer. Um, it's it's the Dark Mechanicum, the Bad Mechanicum. Sometime Mechanicum. Badicus. Good. Yeah. Badicus. Yeah. Indeed, but yeah, it's really good. Maybe they'll do a sequel called Texan. No, that's, you're not going to get that. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think, like, the sequel to Heretic was Hexen, and there's a tech version of that. But I see. Oh, wow. <laughs> I Whoa. see. Yeah. And then it sounds too much like the state, so. <laughs> Anyone been playing anything else? Uh, I have still been playing The Witcher 3, because I've, I've been giving it another go, and I'm not going to talk about The Witcher 3 itself, uh, or, or the, uh, the open world RPG part of it. But fucking hell, Gwent is good. <laughs> like, the card game in The Witcher 3 is really good. And weirdly, I've played in the mean, intervening time since I first tried The Witcher 3 in my- you played Gwent, right? My not, no, no, I've I played Thronebreaker. Oh, was yeah. like the, the Gwent RPG. I didn't really, I liked it, but I, it didn't, I don't know, it just didn't like, um, get me super invested. And the most striking thing about Gwent in the context of The Witcher 3 is The Witcher 3 itself. I'm 15 to 20 hours in and, uh, it still hasn't kind of won me over completely. It's, I'm sort of, I'm having a very low level enjoyment of it. It's, it's fine. It's all, there's, there's regular things that I'm sort of halfway invested in and progressing and it's, it's fine. But then I play a game of Gwent and I'm like, all of my brain is awake and I'm like yelling at the screen and I'm like, Oh my God, why would you do that? You idiot. Oh no, wait, that's genius. Oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> and, uh, the, the whole thing of Gwent is like you, ha- you get dealt a hand of cards and that is your hand of cards for all three rounds that you're going to play and you only have to win two of the rounds if you win two you, you just win the whole game um and so it's all about how much do you invest in this this round without knowing anything about what the next rounds are going to be and how they're going to go um and i played it a fair bit in total i guess but there was still 
a thing the AI did recently that took me completely by surprise, which was they won the first round. Um, and I was feeling all right about it because I hadn't invested too much. They'd, they'd sort of, they'd paid a, a heavy card price to win that first round. And second round, so if I win the first round, when I play the second round, all I gotta do is win that round. If I win that round, it's game over. Doesn't matter what the, I can lose all of my cards doing this. So it's the, it's a rare thing in Gwent is this feeling of like, I don't have to worry about how much I invest. I play, I will play literally every card I have and I just win it and I'm game done. And when they win the first round, and they don't always do this, but, um, so I, I just lost. Second round starts, they just pass. And when you pass in Gwent, that's not just passing a turn, it's giving up for the whole game. It's just saying, uh, for the whole round. So it's saying, I will never play another card this round. I'm done. If you want to play anything at all, you'll win. Fine. <laughs> and I was like, what? You got like two rounds. You could have just invested everything and beaten me there. But okay, fine. You just threw away a round. I just have to play one card, any card, like the lowest value thing I have. I just throw it out some trash. And then we move on to the next round. And then we move on to the next round and realize, huh, this is just like the last round, but I have one less card. <laughs> <laughs> like that was actually a smart move because I'm, this is the exact same scenario they were just in. Fuck. They still win if they win this, but now I'm at a disadvantage. <laughs> Shit, I should do that. <laughs> um, and then I tried it and I got completely owned because, um, <laughs> So I'm always playing as the Northern Realms because I haven't yet bought enough cards from vendors in the open world RPG to have a deck for any other factions. And the faction I was playing against is, is Nilfgaard. Nilfgaard's faction advantage is that they win draws. And so I pass my turn. They pass their turn. <laughs> they won the round and, I, and they don't have to spend any cards to do it. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> This is just the stories of you getting beaten by the AI, it went. Well, I, like, <laughs> even the one where they passed, I realized what the genius of their move, but I still won that round. And I actually win almost every game I play. There are a couple of, I can't beat the Bloody Baron and I can't beat this one other indi- this one other innkeeper because they have insane decks. It is, it's weirdly like paying a pay to win game, but within the context of another game where it's that <laughs> currency you have to pay to win and <laughs> not a real life currency. Oh, so how, do you, how do you get decks? Do you have to, I remember you find just, cards around the world, don't you? But you, there are loads you can just buy from vendors, just any no. old general trader will just have a bunch of Gwent cards. And at first I wasn't buying them and now I'm just buying every single, I'll sell the armor I'm wearing to buy Gwent cards. <laughs> like, okay, I've had to run through the streets naked. I need all your Gwent cards. <laughs> we did a PC game about page joke about precisely this pretty oh, really? yeah yeah we ended up writing a um ended up writing a uh fake excerpt from a witch and a fake witcher novel where <laughs> Geralt um ended up writing this based on like trying to read loads of andre sapkowski tech and then try and ape it um writing a fake passage from a witcher book where Geralt basically agrees to help cure some nobleman's son on, no it was agrees to kill some nobleman's son on the promise of Gwent cards and the best part of this was getting an email back from CD Projekt's PR asking how we'd gotten an advanced sample of the new book <laughs> not realising that we'd made the <laughs> that we'd actually just made it up they genuinely thought it was real <laughs> good so you can also win them from people so if you play like innkeepers in particular I think all have a unique card that, that you can only get by beating them um, and so my mission now is to find all the innkeepers I can beat because there's the one I have a quest to beat. I can't beat him. He's got some special thing. I can almost beat him, but I've kind of, he, I think he's the Nilfgaard one who won the draw. So I fucked that up. Um, and he's also got some insane cards. You play against someone like they put down, um, like one card and the card's perk is every other card in your deck, not in your hand, but in your whole deck that you have in reserve, uh, with the same type all get played for free right now. 
So there were just like seven other cards go up. And you, I only have eight cards in total. <laughs> they just played seven cards for the value of one card. I'm like, I can't beat that. <laughs> there are no mechanics in my deck that do anything of that kind. <laughs> so there are some where you're just like, I just need a better deck to beat this person. Um, but then, even then, like sometimes this, this innkeeper, I think I could probably beat him because I can do a couple of little really tricksy things where like, uh, if they do that in the first round early on before I've invested too much, one thing I can do is play a spy, which is a card I play to their side. The attack value it has, which is decent, actually contributes to their score, makes it harder for me to beat them. But the perk is it gives me two more cards. So basically it more than refunds the cost of playing that card. And if you play that in a round where you've already lost, it's great. Um, but if the enemy does that to me, uh, then I have a card called decoy, which is my, usually the way you use decoys, you put down a really high value card, say in like, you put in a really high value catapult and uh, the enemy can play like a weather card that neutralizes all artillery. And they're like, shit, I've just wasted my best card. But if you play decoy, you get to take that card back. Decoy goes on the board. You take your good card back and now you can play it in a future round, which is great. But if the enemy uses a spy on you, because it goes on your side, you can just take it. <laughs> you just play the decoy. I, actually, I regret placing that spy, which I didn't place. <laughs> I'm having it back in my hand. And then you play it to their side and you get two cards as well. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> Who do you really work for? <laughs> actually, I wasn't real. I was a cardboard cut. Yeah. <laughs> this is like, this is like a level beyond what Team Fortress 2 does. Right? <laughs> the spy is just wearing a mask. The spy is wearing a mask, but also he's made of wood. And it's just like, what the hell? The real spy is over there. Yeah. <laughs> That's very good. <laughs> How's the rest of the game? Uh, it's a slow burn. <laughs> I, I went back and read my review of The Witcher 2, because I remember I reviewed it, and I remember I had vaguely positive feelings about it, but didn't love it. Um, and I remember why now, which is it just took, like... That game took about eight hours to get good. There was, like, three hours of just really scripted story stuff that you didn't let you out in the open world. Then once you did get out of the open world, it detoured from all the story stuff it set up to just have this whole quest line about a Kraken thing that you had to defeat that was just totally irrelevant and boring. And then after that, in Act 2, it gets really good. And there's all this political intrigue and you get to have huge sweeping decisions and the consequence of those decisions come back at you. And I haven't hit that point in The Witcher 3 yet. I'm like 15, 20 hours in. I've met interesting characters. The thing I like about it is you, you sometimes meet NPCs that just have that are just hard to file into the good guy, bad guy spectrum. It's just like, ah, you, you know, um, I don't know. They just have more going on with them. Um, just guys. Just a, just a bunch <laughs> of guys. Uh-huh. <laughs> A bit more complexity, but it hasn't, like, it, it's not tying into, I'm spending so much fucking time just in little rural villages killing monsters for people, which is my job, fair enough, but it doesn't. It's <laughs> always <laughs> what you signed up for. <laughs> but it doesn't tie together into this narrative, and the thing that clicked with me with Witcher 2 is when it, when like, oh shit, I see what's going on in the city now, I know all these factions that are fighting each other, I know there was a, just this one particular way where you could incite, like, a riot that was just the, the worst spanner you could put into the works of this thing that would have terrible consequences, but it would get you what you want. And I remember just seeing that play out was so, you know, I was, I was so invested in that. And it was kind of like enthralling and horrific. And I'm nowhere close to that with The Witcher 3 yet. But mm. that reminded me, oh yeah, The Witcher is a game where you just have to keep fucking playing. Like <laughs> eventually it'll get to that stuff. Shall we do some questions? Yes. Okay. First question come from friends. <laughs> who writes <laughs> it is actually... that's what it says friends it's what it says who write dear cnc as i've gotten older i've started to question the way in which we describe our hobby gaming or video games i mean on the one hand it makes sense fruity semicolon 
Games are something you do for fun. We all enjoy gaming. But it's a loaded word. It carries with it a sense of immaturity as something that's trivial and childish. And that often does it a great disservice. It conjures thoughts of Pac-Man and Space Invaders. Oh, hey, oh, 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 Okay, hang on. Friends. Oh, oh. Uh, uh, Alex Wiltshire, professional old man, just <laughs> Phoenix writes his way into the middle of this question. As someone who's spent the last two months writing obsessively about these games. That's, they're okay. That's all right. It's not immature. I it's not think immature. it evokes those those games to someone over 60. <laughs> I think most people when they hear games, they think Fortnite or Minecraft. I remember very vividly, um, I must have told the story on the pod before, I did some, I did a summer of work at uh, a, a local BBC radio station, I won't say which one, um, and on my first day, they, they this is when I was, a, I was still in my late teens, they worked, walked me into a room, like which is where they kept all the CDs or something, and they pointed at a picture of like just a generic like 55 year old middle-aged kind of couple on the wall and said this is your audience never do anything they won't understand (laughs) (laughs) that would be so useful i really wish i had one of those very ways i've worked and um and that is true because it means that if you were to ever do a a video game section you must also accompany by it accompany it with the bleep bloop of of space invaders or or pac-man just to make sure they understood what was happening um Anyway, the question continues, uh, uh, but that is as far as, so, um, Pac-Man Space Invaders, that is, as far as something like Edith, as far from something like Proteus or Edith Finch as you can imagine, other mediums are much luckier. Books, television, film, and theatre are all relatively neutral terms that describe the object or place you use to consume them. As our young medium grows and strives for greatest, greater artistic relevance, I wonder whether we should find a new word that's a bit more impartial. Do you agree? And if so, what would you choose? Uh, cheers, friends. That's okay, friends. Hi, friends. <laughs> I feel like we brought this upon ourselves a little bit as an industry in that, that there is the reason people imagine violent things when you say games is that a lot of games are violent. <laughs> I, think, I think the issue here is the assumption of violence. I think it's the assumption of triviality that's the more... Yeah. Cr- cr- but that said, like, I mean... Novels are literally named for the fact that, like, that's a, for a slightly patronizing word used to describe long form prose. Oh, this is novel. Yeah. I'm used to short form prose. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm used to invigorating poetry. And now you've written all of these words in a row. I mean, I, um, what, what's quite, quite, quite interesting about the, um, pulling out Pac-Man and Space Invaders as a kind of mark of immaturity. I'd argue that actually their, uh, stature has changed over time because when they first came out, you know, I think that they were very much associated with little kids playing. Um, because, and you know, their themes, I think would have been seen as, you know, aliens coming from space, you know, that's what people hmm. would have read into them, you know, and you know, those, that, that thematic nature, the, the, you know, the crude as it was, placed it very much within a very child childish sort of realm <coughs> i think since then they've been much more abstract like space invaders kind of almost sort of has become a, a pure game where it's you know the, the thematic yeah. layer of that childish thematic layer has almost disappeared entirely and it's become <laughs> its own thing when you say hear the word space invaders i think nobody really thinks about aliens and you're a spaceship shooting back it's the game, like it's this and abstract. I guess 
when chess was invented, it was very tropey because it's oh, another fucking war yeah, game. Right? War game. <laughs> you go with your soldiers. Like, King, queen. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. want to go broad, too broad on this, but I suspect this problem dates back to the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um, because, like, the notion of, you know, play being immature is tied in with the fact that play is what you do when you're young and, and work is what you do when you're old. And we exist in this shift that's taking place over a long period of time towards play being something that you continue to do throughout your life and, and that continues to be meaningful and relevant in lots of different contexts. And that, in that case, play and game are, you know, uh, interchangeable really in terms of their value. Um, and it ebbs and flows with generations, but where people place the virtue of work, but we're zooming headlong into a, a, a leisure kind of based culture provided we don't set everything on fire first. And, and, and if that doesn't happen, then, you inevitably have to change the value judgment that makes you assess certain things as work and therefore worthy and certain things as play and therefore somehow childish or unworthy. Like we don't need to, we don't need to reclaim, you don't need to come up with a different word for games. You just need to start attributing, uh, your, the value of your time in a different way. I think, I think, but there is a, I think there is a very, there is an, a point there in the sense that like gaming as a pursuit like something that is an identifiable pursuit something an identified area of interest like i would say that right now yes like that is i think that you know you could probably argue that most people who play games in a regular way you know are from across all society now like ages and across all society but they probably don't say that they're gamers they don't play video games if you ask them what you're doing you know they would probably say i'm playing a game they wouldn't use the word video game probably and they probably they definitely wouldn't identify as gamers or or anything we like actually, that we have a really good example of uh when your genre name has become associated with a bunch of tropes and you want to break free of that coining a new genre name or medium name to try and counteract that with comics and graphic novels right Graphic novels is a way to to make it sound like it's not just yeah, comics; it's yeah. not just for kids. It's serious. It's not just this We're saying novel. Thing. We're doing, and it hasn't worked. <laughs> I don't think. So, <laughs> I, don't, if, I don't think there's anyone who, like, of all the people who have a sort of negative perception of comics, I don't think any of them, if you say graphic novels to them, have a better <laughs> conception of that. But I think yeah. there's a prob. There is a problem where, like, if you if most of the people who play games like don't actually sort of identify, or like, you know. You know, I like reading, you know, everyone who reads books says, would say, I don't even know, there isn't a term for it. There isn't actually a, room, a word for collect, collective word for <laughs> well, people who are interested in books. What I would say is these collective words are also partly a marketing thing, right? Like the need for the term graphic novel, I think it seems to make sense to me that it in part arose because bookshops, your kind of Waterstones is in your Barnes and Nobles wanted to stock them. And wanted to overcome any kind of stigma associated with them by having a title for that section mm. of the bookshop. So unless Waterstones or Barnes and Noble is planning to stock video games under the heading interactive entertainment. Um, <laughs> if only we could get the attention of the big players like Waterstones <laughs> right. and Barnes and Noble. <laughs> then, then we don't have anything to worry about really because games will continue to sell sold as games to people who don't give a fuck and will carry that not giving a fuck about the fact that they're called games through to their adult lives. Yeah. Right. The next generation is not going to care at all. Um, and I think this, I think that will in turn devalue or, or take away some of this association between the word game and, and everything else. Like, sorry, I'm wheezing a little bit because of the rum. The, um, <laughs> the, um, wheezy rum. The point you make about like identifying as gamers, I think, I don't know. 
I feel like that's slightly lame, even within circles of people who play games a lot anyway. Am I wrong about that? Identifying as... Yeah, saying like, as, I'm a gamer. Like, yeah. gamer identity is just Yeah, the become, word gamer has become as powerfully lame. <laughs> <laughs> like... So I, I think that's that, I think that's okay because yeah. like you would never say I'm a booker. <laughs> I'm a, yeah, I, I'm a TV. Uh, I never say I'm a gamer, even to like either to to other people who play games or to people who don't play games. Yeah, because people who don't Actually, play games they don't know what the fuck that you is. Said, no, you, but you would happily say I like games. Yeah, you say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like games, but I'm a game developer. Well. Like, I sometimes I sometimes use the full video games quite in more formal contexts when. <laughs> Almost like I'm telling them off by using their full name. <laughs> like, video games! games. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be a great excerpt. <laughs> Perhaps it's our new jingle. <laughs> what have you done? <laughs> or not, again? <laughs> what would video games' middle name be? That's the real question we should be answering. My video is the first name and games is yeah, the second name. naturally. Hyphen, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Video hyphen games. What have you been up to? Yeah. Video space games. <laughs> Video space hyphen games. <laughs> space or hyphen? It's debated. Like or neither. Actually, I'm pretty strong. It's one word kind of person. So I have no feelings on the issue at all. <laughs> I just realized I don't either. I just said that. <laughs> I'm surprised you said that. Yeah, no, I just, My thing is, I know there's a bunch of my friends who feel really strong about this, but I can't remember which side they're on. <laughs> right. so, I think for me, I can't the even video, agree with the video space games, just, it feels like... It feels it's like nothing. New York Times. It's, 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 feels, nothing, it's yeah, like it's so, like so many AP-style guide yeah. kind of nonsenses. It just imposes, like, M-dashes. Who the fuck has space for a hyphen that big? Nobody no needs No one it. in this side of the world. I have still never got on board with the idea of email just being all one continuous world with no hyphen. Like, you need the hyphen there. For the hyphen. What? That's crazy. Good Christ. <laughs> w- which part are you appalled by? My position or the position I'm opposing? <laughs> <laughs> the You're hyphen p- in email. Yeah. Where you, are you? You do use it or you don't? You d- I don't, know. You're an old person. Needs a hyphen. I, I'm just going to use the email facility. <laughs> Otherwise it says email. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise it's not sufficiently indicating that it's electronic mail, not email. Yeah. How do you feel about esports? I'd probably hyphenate that too. <laughs> I'll hyphenate anything. Bring it on. <laughs> Shit. Well, I don't know... Uh, don't know what to say to that. I don't think I don't think this podcast is going to be the same again. No. <laughs> so would you would you hyphen hyphen it video games? Uh, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not like against it. Wouldn't offend me if I read that. Fine. Well, I guess wow. we've all discovered something about our friends here today. Um, <laughs> I don't care either. It's it's um it's a shock silence. Actually, no, I do. Oh, I just yeah. realised that I do. <laughs> It's got a whole roller coaster. Yeah, I've been on a whole roller coaster. Like, nah, I don't care about. Um, like, but your your Gmail, you don't pronounce that Gmail, do you? <laughs> no. <laughs> but it's also not hyphenated. Look, it's right there. But it never has been hyphenated. Like that. Was, but it's it a, was... but it's a take on email. Right, but it's just a brand name. They get to decide how the fuck they pronounce that. Fine. <laughs> Next question comes from Kev, who writes, Dear Cheese and Greater, hope you're well. This is the first time I've asked a question. I hope you'll go easy on me. I'll keep it brief. Chris, 
You have more on more than one occasion mentioned your strong dislike of the graphic scenes from GTA V involving Trevor. One bit in particular, the curb stomp, reminds me of a scene from American History X, and I wondered whether you dislike these types of scenes as much in other forms of media as you do in GTA V, or do you think it's worse in games, and if so, why? What do the rest of the podders think? Thanks to the great pods, Kev. Um, <clears throat> I think, I think you maybe gotta somewhat justify your gratuitous, um, sort of one directional violence without much emphasis yeah. in any context. In American History X, I haven't seen it in a long time, so I can't, I don't know what I would think of it. I saw it today, but it, it's to set up an arc. It's, that's the, yeah. the dark, uh, part of it. And then it goes on a journey from there to, to show how wrong that is and how awful it is. And, and, um, mm. the character who does that undergoes a, you know, huge transformation. Um, and as I say, I haven't seen it in a long time. I don't know if I'd find that trans, that journey and that transformation satisfying today and whether I'd have problems with it that I didn't have at the time. Um, but that's very different to what Trevor is. <laughs> Trevor right. is not the start of an arc that is. Yeah, Trevor's a hyper-violent South Park character transplanted into just with better mocap. Yeah. Like, there's there's not a lot else there. And and you could probably, you know, that scene was probably totally inspired by or a copy of... Yeah, uh, and that's the other thing, is that Rockstar's material, particularly in the GTA series, is so so dependent on pastiche of movies and on its referential of on, on its sort of referential nature being almost the point. And that makes it less um, appealing as storytelling. Cause it really have anything to say it's beyond. Yes. We've seen this movie as well. Um, but it's also weak. I think particularly with Trevor, I think I probably mentioned this, but the, you know, the other part of the, that sequence that I really objected, well, the whole sequence is, um, a huge rejection of the lost and damned, which is just about the most heart Grand Theft Auto ever had. That was the, um, the expansion for Grand Theft Auto 4, where you played as the biker gang. And it was genuinely like almost a story with no typically kind of rock star jokes in it. It was <laughs> just, uh, you know, quite human. Like, and, and GTA 4 as a whole had that strength, actually, apart from its weaker elements. And, the fact that Trevor's introduction in GTA five is so explicitly quite a meta rejection of GTA four is mm. like, yeah, you see what they did there. Cause it, it starts with Trevor, like, um, like, you know, kind of aggressively having his way with one of the principal female characters from that scene and then curb stomping the main character from that game to death. Like that is not subtle. It's not clever. It's, you know, uh, and, to go with it, I think, is to engage in a kind of sort of slightly lame cheerleading for Rockstar's methodology, which is basically mm-hmm. just to shock you at the same well, at the same time trying to impress you with their ability to reference both their own stuff and some movies. Like yeah. Yeah. I find it very thin. Um like it's not to say that games couldn't leverage, you know, strong violence to tell a meaningful story. It's just that they most often don't (laughs) (laughs) any other i was thinking i was thinking as you described that like i think there's a sort of for me there's also a dimension of um attention as well where in gta and many games like you can't be guaranteed the pay you can't guarantee the players paying any attention so you can 
make some highfalutin scene in which this character does this kind of commits this act, mm. but you have no idea whether the player they're is going it. to is yeah. going to skip it or maybe they've skipped the setup bits of it so they don't know in what fairness. this means and sort of stuff. Whereas a movie like you know if if the person isn't paying attention, they're not watching the film, right? Whereas you're still playing the game hmm. even when you've skipped the cutscene, you know, there's, 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 yeah. it's totally legitimate not to watch it. And therefore, if it's legitimate not to watch that cutscene, how, how right. is it powerful to your game? I think that's that you're a really important point, on? actually. Like, I, I kind of realized I've had this conversation a bunch recently in, in a work context, but doing more narrative design. Like, I've realized with time that, like, God, cutscenes are a last resort. Like they, they, yeah. they almost should like, you know, they, uh, and this is someone who loves so many big narrative driven games that are 50% movie, things like Mass Effect series, but like, you know, those kinds of scenes, they're so, you know, if, if the goal of a really good story is to, or one of them is to create something that is neatly integrated into the delivery mechanism that, you know, this is not a problem that films or books encounter quite so much, but they can do inventive things with. Whereas with games, it's just the struggle. It's to successfully tell a story within the delivery mechanism that you're actually creating. And cutscenes are, you know, the equivalent of requiring someone to read a program before seeing a, th- a play or a movie. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, like, yeah. they are, you know, even though they play automatically and you have to actively skip them, they're functionally extra effort. They're like, pay attention to this now. We know it's not what you're really here to do or if you're here for this then 99% of our effort on the creation of this product was wasted (laughs) because we could have just made a film like yeah i do think they're um i I think that it is legitimate to make a game that's like fundamentally cutscenes. i think you know if if that's what the game is and that's fine and like and, and i think as a player you understand that and therefore you know that you're not paying attention if you're not watching them GTA, you can fucking skip that shit. <laughs> yeah, and I think yeah, still maybe you're right GTA. again. It's it's more a question of where the balance is struck. Yeah, like, and I think it's something to do with player agency overall. Like, yeah. I've always think I think you know the games that I there are games that I love that struggle with this, like um, Metal Gear Five, where those long cutscenes can feel really at odds with the weird kind of open world <laughs> stealth. Yeah. Balloon kidnapping adventure you're playing yeah. the rest of the time. <laughs> they can feel really at odds with it. Um, you sort of accept it because it's such a series staple thing, but it feels really odd. I think, I think there's a corollary there. I think there's, I think there's a, a relationship between how much player agency and freedom you offer most of the time and how you tell your story. I think the exemplar of all that kind of, that, um, that thing is the, um, the GTA, uh, no, the, the Cuff Far Cry 5, um, getting Sort of like getting, getting, yeah, bliss started where, you know, you're going to get the cutscene. Yeah. We're going to give you the cutscene. The cutscene is going to chase you through the open world, hunt you down. (laughs) And if you take any damage at any point, fucking cutscenes, (laughs) it's tough. You wanted to get away from it, you can't. You're being hunted by a coven of very impressive mocap actors (laughs) who want nothing more than to tie you to a chair. A rogue band of cinematographers. (laughs) And then then stick one leg Roger Deakins is coming for you with a blister. (laughs) (laughs) And and a very capable actor is going to put one leg up on a chair and tell me something about insanity. (laughs) (laughs) 
because there's something kind of revelatory about when a character in a game interacts with the scenery in a way that's sort of like basically the cutscene equivalent of spinning a chair around, sitting on it backwards and saying, hey, kids. Yeah. Like, <laughs> man. Yeah. No, I just think it sucks, basically, the Trevor stuff. He's a like, fucking cartoon mm-hmm. character. Yeah. And I think that, oh, man, I've never had a harder kind of relationship. I'm talking about reviewing games that are too big to review. Reviewing GTA 5 is a thing. Anyway, our final question for the evening comes from Duncan, who writes, Hi, Crate. Hello, Crowbar. Following on from last week's discussion about auto chess, what are your hopes for the uh, enviable, and I think he might mean inevitable, <laughs> a high-res take on the genre? Thanks, Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what what did they respond to that? Uh, Paladins, Paladins, Smite, yeah. um, uh, Smite Tactics. So... I have a, quite a lot of, um, you know, I've had plenty of really nice experiences visiting iRes and playing their games, and I, I like Smite mechanically, particularly. Um, so sort of surprised they haven't they haven't done one of these yet, but it's been fast. This fad has been like this has been a fast from, fad, yeah, you're from right. initiation to everyone part for to Valve and Riot piling in. Has been yeah, and I, and I think it's it's a little mean. Um, though true to some <laughs> <laughs> mean though true um, to say that Hyros tend to chase the latest trend because the, the fact is that they tend to do quite an interesting job with any genre mm. they take on like Paladins gets a lot of flack for being the free Overwatch and that is an enormous part of its market appeal but it is its own game I would defend it on that basis like it has its own ideas it's more of a it's got more MOBA kind of DNA in it than Overwatch does. Um, it has a right to exist. <laughs> so, and, and this is the thing. The, 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 the high-res thing, as far as I have perceived it, is to do just enough that's interesting with a genre that you are following to meaningfully differentiate yourself for people who really care about the details while not quite differentiating yourself for cynical people in the audience, yeah. which is a lot of them. And that is a kind of like, so my guess, my hope for this would be that their take on it is so different that people don't recognize <laughs> that's what they're doing. Yeah. Because then they would finally get out of that cycle of being seen as the copycats. Whereas honestly, they, they have a lot of talented designers and they almost always put some spin on something that is a bit different. It just doesn't always work. I guess we're also waiting for Blizzard's take on it, right? Yeah, so why, yeah, why aren't yeah. Blizzard blamed for this kind of, like, why aren't Blizzard They probably are, but I think, thing? I mean, Riot and Valve have moved so fast on this, even, you know, yeah. uh, they move faster than those companies usually move, mm. and I think Blizzard doesn't move fast. Really. But Blizzard, Blizzard's, Blizzard's, you know, not a single game that Blizzard has ever made hasn't been a sort of like quite a close yeah, reading of been existing off stuff. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if oh Lost Vikings. <clears throat> I, wonder if the, the, yeah. I wonder if the failure of uh, I mean sorry if you measure like between TF2 and Overwatch that's a long fucking delay. <laughs> it takes yeah, a yeah, while yeah, to yeah. capitalize. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, like it. By the time they they turned around Heroes of the Storm, they had already lost the right to the domain because <laughs> 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 someone else had come along and made it. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. Like I think I don't think. Maybe it's because they spend, they're not free. I don't think Blizzard have the freedom to release something rough. Yeah. No, no they're not. And, rough. and auto chess games are, if nothing else, very rough and experimental. There's a lot, yeah. you know, I think they could maybe get around to it when they'd figured out how to 
perfect it somehow or, or make it super accessible. But by the time they'd done that, the audience would be bedded in elsewhere. That's what happened with Heroes of the Storm. Like they pulled it off with Hearthstone, but only really because there wasn't any competition. You know, there was no great Magic the Gathering game at the time. Yeah. Um, and I think actually, you know, my argument would be that Hearthstone necessar- wasn't necessarily successful because it was access- an accessible version of Magic the Gathering. It's because it was Magic the Gathering, but in a in a package that was a little bit more accessible than Magic Online as it existed at the time. And Magic was Magic Online free to play at that no. point. No, but that was Hearthstone. Uh, yes, it is. Yeah, what yeah. am I talking about? What yeah. am I talking about? Of course, yeah. it was. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I think they maybe overestimated how important the work into actually making that formula accessible was relative to simply having an offering. Mm. And I think that is also what held Heroes of the Storm back as well. Holds, I guess it's still going. But yeah, I, I heard on the Waypoint podcast that it's sort of like it's accepted now that it's not going to be an esport. Like it's not going to compete with Dota and and LOL yeah. in that sense. And that the game has got way better since they accepted that. Like now that they're not trying to make this perfectly balanced sort of sport, they can just add way more fun stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Like, and Hearts is a fun game. Don't get me wrong. It's just like. Um, it couldn't do everything that those could do because they really wanted to do the same easy to learn, difficult to master thing that really gets applied to all Blizzard games. Mm. And I feel like that's maybe a bit of a limitation to how quickly you can respond to a trend. Yeah. Um, as for why Harris haven't done it yet, they might be, <laughs> you know. I'm all out of takes. <laughs> I'm all out of takes. <laughs> this is how I feel. <laughs> cold and i'm ashamed hot i'm I'm hot and i'm ashamed lying naked on the floor if you would like to send us a question good job going now i'm not cutting that out um, if you'd like to send us a question for future episode of the Crate and Crowbar, you can do so by emailing us a question to Crate and Crowbar. Crowbar. By emailing us a question at Crate and Crowbar. Crowbar. Just start typing C's and don't yeah. stop till you reach us. Uh, you can figure it out. It's the name of the podcast. If you'd like to hang out on our Discord channel, you can find a link on our website at www.gobbledygibbledygob.com. <laughs> uh, you can find the podcast on Twitter at Crate and Crowbar. Hmm. <laughs> no, hmm. The hum is, is unwritten. We weren't that cheap. Yeah. Um, and um, finally, thank you very much to our Patreon backers. Um, and sorry. Uh, you can find out more about the Patreon, uh, by visiting patreon.com forward slash Creighton Crowbar. If you would like to follow us on Twitter as individuals, uh, my Twitter name, as they say, is C Thurston. That's C-T-H-U-R-S-T-E-N. Hmm. Tom? I am Pentadact. P-E-N-T-A-D-A-C-T. And Alex remains... My call sign, 
Your call sign. <laughs> your gamer tag. What you, What's your gamer mind? tag, Alex? Uh, uh, goose man. <laughs> <laughs> Rotational. Gotta get fucking crew. early to get goose man, I think. <laughs> and a very crubbledy crew to you. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks, everybody. Everybody.